Welcome to the podcast. Uh oh, and now we're gonna start. That was one week in the making. Yeah, I right. don't care what they say about us anyway. I don't care about that. What band are we doing again? I don't know. I don't know. I have no idea. Me neither. Didn't think so. Curious. Tell us, John. Oh, don't you have something to say also? Because we're doing this band. But, but it's your you album. Saw. So you have something to say, Matt? Not yeah. really. You, you, we're doing this band. <laughs> okay. You saw <laughs> them. You saw them last night. I did actually see them. And, and Matt's seen them in the past. Have we said who uh, them is yet? No, no, not yet. What album are we doing? There is the title, though. We're doing <laughs> Weezer! Yay! Everything will be alright in the end. Weezer is a band... We'll get right into it. That I have loved for <laughs> my entire knowledge of them as a band. I guess is the only way to put it. I've I've known them since about 94, 95 is when I first got into them. Nine, wow. ten years old. So yeah. debut album fan. That's impressive. Yeah, yeah. I was listening to the radio that young and I was hearing some of their stuff because it was it was a, an interesting experience. This was the first modern band I really got into. Before Blink, before Green Day, Weezer was one of the first guys I knew outside what my family, my, my mother, my father, had shown to me as a kid. So there's that. There's also the fact that growing up, especially around the 2000, 2001, I really started connecting with my brother, uh, Matt, who I don't really, I, I never really talked about my family, my brothers too much on the air, but Weezer was something that he and I always shared. And he's a self-taught guitarist. He first learned things like Surf Wax America, El Scorcho, just to learn the guitar. He wanted to be able to play those songs. Um, so I've got a lot of history with the band. I know every single one of their albums, mostly forwards and backwards, the newest stuff, maybe not so much. Um, but just going back, the trifecta for me growing up was... Weezer, Blink, and Green Day, but always Weezer. And sadly, they're the band I've never gotten to see live. And there's, that's, I think, going to be one of my biggest regrets if I never get to see them live before they you know, fall apart and never make music again, which would be terrible. I saw them live. I know, and that's why I'm a little so upset. Because <laughs> I'm probably the biggest fan here, and I never, I haven't yet. It's, it's on my bucket list. Okay, in fact, they're one right, of two bands right. that you're a bigger fan of than I am that I've seen in you. okay, man. Yes. I also saw Cage the Elephant. Yes, and Steam Powered Giraffe, and... Oh, yeah, them too. Yeah, so three, three. Um, Probably the most uh, emotions we ever laid in the line in under five minutes of the podcast. Well, it's... Uh, how, what about, about your, your experience with the Mad? So Might I... Might as well just go around the table here. I got into Weezer... Unique in, intro. When I was in high school, um, and it was when Green Album had come out, and I heard Hashpipe on the radio, and was like, okay, what's this? I want it. <laughs> and then I went and got the album. It had stuff like Island in the Sun and, and, and uh, Photograph. And it's just, it was a very eclectic, unique, and interesting 
rock record. And so I was like, these guys are pretty great. And then my friend Dan got very angry that I started with that record and said, here's Pinkerton, here's Blue Album, go listen to them, it's your homework, come back. Well, he was right. And he was right. But my favorite album is still the Green Album. It's when I did get into them. Um, I did like Make Believe. I also sort of liked um, um, Red Album. Didn't really like Ratitude, and then I don't remember anything after that. So I'm excited for this record because I want to give them another chance. I don't want them to go the way of Green Day well, or Bare Naked Ladies or other bands that I've been disappointed with in the last two years. See, you're, Actually, you're the belligerent fan. But then again, I know lots of belligerent fans, and we'll get deeper into this as we go along. Um, although, just to speak on the live side of things, yes, I'm a kind of recent comer, new well, not a newcomer per se. I've known about them for a long time, but I did see them in concert just last night, and considering the day we're recording, I'm giving away that the day, night I saw them was Monday the 27th uh, at the Bowery Ballroom, which is a great venue to hear Weezer in. It's a great acoustical venue, period. And of course, this will be out on Thursday. So yeah, it's pretty fresh in my head considering that and this album. And as I said, again, just now that we've cleared the personal front, so I'll get into my personal front and then we'll get into the band from a more objective standpoint, because I think this is going to be interesting. Again, I came in as more of a casual fan. Most of my friends were huge fans, so I knew plenty of their singles just by proxy. Enough to, I guess, gather that their overall sound was very even, very warm and very unoffensive. I'll get deeper into that word in a minute. But first, I'll mention that for the sake of this project, for the sake of seeing them in concert too, I went through their entire discography, which is not something I often do here on Crash Chords. Normally, we just take the album for the album and we compare it against music. Because, you know, it's a very niche thing to, I guess, compare albums within their own discography. But I think it's kind of appropriate in this case. Because, you know, it's, it's important to see how a band has evolved and I think that was important to do particularly in this instance because there's a lot of contention, and I mean intense contention, amongst fans of Weezer concerning their discography. People who either fell into or out of love with them from album to album. And it always baffled me considering that I never detected any pronounced restructuring of their sound based on what I'd heard. So I thought it was worth some looking into. Again, a little more on that in a minute. First, back to my impressions. Those words I used before, even, unoffensive these have multiple connotations. Part of it has to do with their work being fairly introverted. You'll find this in the lyrics. It's not trying to change worlds. It's just trying to convey feelings. That's important. And it's pretty easy for people of all creeds to sort of hop on board with something like that. Now how it relates to their sound. You're clearly looking here at a band that's taking a lot of their sound from punk roots, sort of, but certainly the lighter side of punk. Nothing thrashy like Bad Brains or even the Ramones, something slower paced, something more moody, something more focused like grunge rock, but also more melodic like in Green Day. So that's clearly an influence for them, not to mention they were one of their contemporaries. Now let's look at another thing, their songwriting style. Beyond simply just being melodic, I noticed that these are easily accessible melodies. There's nothing really too drawn out here, nothing complex, but it's written with the intention to imprint themselves in the mind of the listener. So in this regard, I suppose they fit more of the pop category. And considering much of their work, I find no better comparison here, in this respect, than to late 50s, early 60s pop rock. Like, for instance, the surf rock variety, or even early Beatles. Again, that's not sonically, but songwriting-wise. So, you combine all these things, and I think you get what many would consider to be the perfect voice of 90s rock. I think that's what a lot of people go back to Weezer for. It brings them back to nostalgic moments like, for instance, what John conveyed. It's trying to bring you along with them every step of the way. It's not trying to exclude anybody. And the music is very humble about this. 
And that's kind of what I mean by the word unoffensive. It's humble. It's coming from all the warm places, the suburban, warm, local, small venue places, even the garage, as is referenced by, uh, by the track, the garage, Blue Album. But again, when I say garage, I'm not speaking garage rock, not with the same grit or all-out punk as garage rock like we encountered back in episode 114, Darrell's Ohio. So, that's a little history for you. And then there's the question of discography, but we're gonna let the album, as we go through this and dip into the various sides of what they do here in their newest album, we're gonna use this as kind of a lens to explore what they have and haven't done in their previous work. So stay tuned if you're curious to know any of these sort of post-mortem thoughts on these bygone albums. I think I'll leave it at that. The more important thing is this album, Everything will be all right in the end. And the what does it do for not just Weezer fans, but for the rest of music? As we often talk about. And so we'll get right into the first track, which is Ain't Got No Body. Nice use of a word that doesn't exist grammatically. Hey, be nice. This is not the first time they've done that. That's true. That's been around. Um, so this is the intro track. It has a very interesting beginning. They start with a soundbite, which in the history of Weezer, I can't remember happening very often. Uh... Not sweater, often. Sweater Song is probably the most famous for yeah, it. But, but, but definitely not frequently. At the beginning of an album, for sure. Sure. So it starts with a daughter saying that she's had nightmares, can't sleep, and a mother, cons- I am assuming a mother, or at least an adult female figure, consoling her, saying, don't worry, sweetheart, everything will be all right in the end. Very dark. And then kicks into guitar riffs that are equally as dark. Kind of almost grungy, very heavy. A little bit repetitive, but but in a kind of conveying emotion intro kind of a way, not not a boring way. I'd adapt it a little bit, only to say it's not so much grunge here that I hear, not in the same way that you get that back in in, in sort of their '90s stuff, but it's it's more in the indie field. Okay, and I think this is one of the other. It was things. rough. It was rough, not grungy, but it was kind of a rough guitar sound. I felt. Well, like. this kind of I mean, this is one of the reasons I held off citing anything about their discography because right. it's going to kind of come organically as we go through this album and we start noticing various things that are familiar. Yeah. Um. So you say you noted a grungy sound, it's kind of important to note it that the only two tracks that I consider to be particularly grungy in their work are the only 90s albums, the Blue Album and Pinkerton. That's the only stuff that really sounded grungy because it was the rawest of their material. The fact of the matter is, once you have good production value, once you are an established band, as of, let's say, the Green Album, they were never going to be that raw again. That's just not something you can hope for as a Weezer fan. So you're not going to get this just raw, untamed Weezer thing. They're as far as I know, I think I think uh, Rivers Cuomo is 45 years old. It's just you're not going to get that same rawness, so you might as well go in a different direction. And the direction that they went in is 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 indie because that was with the times, and that was kind of what I wanted to hone in on. They're pretty good at following with the times, yes, and sort of staying relevant, maintaining you know Weezer's core, I guess, at the base, except for perhaps a couple of disagreements, certain albums, but in general, they're pretty good at. It. They've had a lot of albums out right now, and, and Rivers Cuomo's it's an amazing songwriter, and he can keep on churning this stuff out. But I want to go back to musically where the track goes. So it starts a little heavy, very dark, mostly just a repeating guitar, kind of rough sounding. But then that guitar quickly transforms into a lighter kind of musicality. <coughs> they bring in additional instruments, and it, the, the song musically takes a lighter shift. It's, it has a lot of the standard trappings for what you would consider the iconic Weezer composition, which is all along the same lines as an iconic pop composition. They have a rising pre-chorus. This is something they've done ad nauseum at points. Hmm. 
it goes into a fairly standard, straight up uh, repetitive chorus work. But at the same time, this is something that I think is intentional. I think it's a nod back to their roots. I appreciate it for what it is. But musically, this isn't breaking any boundaries. However, I did appreciate that lyrically, once the lyrics come in, the darkness of the song and the intro stays within the lyrics. The lyrics are on that kind of negative side, that kind of darker tone, which holds the cohesiveness of the song together. It's not breaking any ground, but it gives it a narrative lock when you put those things together. The problem, I suppose, in this case is reflection, you know, in the music. That's the thing where it kind of suffers here. But it sort of brings me into something else. I, I don't, again, I'm not going to go into, I guess, necessarily what I was expecting, because, again, as kind of a casual fan and newcomer to the to the whole heap of their discography, I, I wasn't really, ex I didn't know what to expect, to be honest. I did notice one little similarity here that they had in the beginning of, the beginnings of this album as to the beginnings of some other albums. They kind of take a little bit while, a little bit of time to get on the right foot. In other words, you're not going to be bombarded by the best of Weezer, I think, in any case, in the beginning of their albums. You need to wait. You're going to need to wait. You need to get, you're going to get some safe work on your way up. But it means, you know, sometimes, if, if you're, depending upon the kind of listener you are, if you're looking for some of the severe grit that you might find in Pinkerton, well, then this is probably going to disappoint you a little bit. But that said, I mean, I feel like they're, they're, they're building that way is not a bad way to build a record overall. Starting with the weaker stuff to kind of just get people in but not super psyched, kind of just bringing them in slowly but then giving them the best work at the end, building to that climax, is not a terrible way to build Plus, an Plus, I'd album. also say that 80% of Weezer's fan base kind of goes to them for this, this sort of fluffy stuff a little yeah. bit. You know, they're fluffy within the framework of, of light punk. But, it's already fluffy as it is. But it's not it's not fluffy so far as the content's going. No, it, you're it right. gets dark here. Right. I thought I had a friend, but she was just pretend. She didn't have a soul, nothing I could hold. My daddy loved me, no one could touch me, until he went up and left me lonely. That's human nature. We fail each other. We keep on searching for another. <laughs> These true. are bleak, bleak lyrics. In which case you have a, a, an interesting case of irony, you know, in, 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 the, in the marriage of that with the music. And I feel like that's absolutely intentional. I mean, In this case, I suppose you could be right, because there's also that, again, going back to the intro here, the intro that's, that's musicless, and yeah. all you have is the mother and daughter. Again, I had another nightmare, go back to sleep, honey. And it culminates in that, you know, everything, everything. will be all right in the, in end, the end album Very title. Very final, too. Like, in the end. In when the it end. all ends, it'll be okay. Exactly. It's like, that's what my... I mean, of course, people use this as an expression to mean, well, the end of anything. The end of the situation at hand. But to be honest, I went the dark route. I took it's, it as death. It I took it as... Weak. Yeah. Well, it's also a way of looking at it as, you know... Why would you say that to your daughter? <laughs> why, well, the idea of, why would you fret about this? In the end, it won't matter. Just just do what you gotta do. Get to that next step. That idea that you push forward, you move on. Because in the end, when you die, you're dead. That's it. All this other stuff that you worried about is gone. Which is the kind of overall... I think emotion conveyed as well. There's a lot of things here that you can't really like. I mean, they're they're tough to grapple with, I suppose, from a from an existentialist standpoint. But they hold true. I mean, again, I thought I had a friend, but she was just pretend. She didn't have a soul. Nothing I could hold. Nothing that I could hold on to. As in, kind of to say that nothing. That, there's nothing in this life that you can really hold on to yeah. for sure. Nothing is sure fire. So in other words, if you can't control it, might as well let go. Live and let live. For me, as an intro track, I think it's impactful enough to get you hooked. I think the safe sound. And the, the, the typical Weezer form of the body of this song just supports what people are looking for in the end on this record to begin with. And I think the interesting lyric choices and the interesting soundbite intro is what holds it together really well. So while it's pretty even and warm 
sound-wise, that other stuff brings it a little bit to the next level. It doesn't make it revolutionary by any means, but at least gives a little depth to the song. It, it, yeah, I'll, I'll agree with that. Especially in this case, if you if you take the lyrics, then it's like, all right, you might as well, are we going to get an ironic album? Well, let's find out. Um, aside from that, I'll just mention a couple of other things here, just that I noticed about the, like the, just the, the tone of this. We already said it sounds kind of indie, it sounds kind of modern. Beyond that, they're introducing something new here. And again, they always introduce like some, some new element in each of their albums, for better or for worse. And then what I've noticed here is, is, is the quality of the guitar, particularly the guitar solos, really similar to Brian May in Queen. The sty stylistically, they've done that for a while. Um, if you really look in their other work, it's there too. But it's I, of I, the more. I didn't find it to it's be of so. The more modern pieces. It's, it's yeah. not of. It's their not everywhere, but I've heard it before. Heyday. Guitar solos are by no stretch of the imagination unusual for Weezer. They have one in nearly every song that they do. No, in this case, I'm talking about more the tone itself. That that, that is say. more modern. That I would I would I've, definitely equate I, to the more rock. The stuff more recent done on the records. Reason. I mean, also remember, I got into Weezer more recently than the older stuff. I went back and listened to the older stuff. We're talking Green Album, Red Album were like the big ones for me that I listened to make believe, and that these sort of guitar styles in a vein were in them. Not as obviously classic rock influenced as these are, but in a style. They, they are no strangers to, to solos, as John had said, but I agree, Steve. I think there's something so very obvious about these, these guitar solos that are reminiscent of classic rock, specifically Queen as one of the bands, but definitely classic rock in general. That's late 70s, early 80s era. Right. Of, of classic rock, yeah. and and it, there's, they're no stranger to that in the in the coming songs. Um, track two is the first single off the record. It's the only song I had heard previously before listening to the record for the podcast called "Back to the Shack," which, truthfully, when I heard this song as a single, was slightly disappointed. But, and this is where I'm, I want to take over. This song is. I believe the perfect step in the direction of what Weezer is trying to do with their fan base. Because the whole song is a self-referential apology to the fans. But still with that Weezer little bit of a twist, they aren't 100% apologizing. Rivers is not upset that he made these previous albums that so many people jump ship on. But he's he also realizes that the fan base left him because... They did not like what he was doing. And this is that song. This is that song very early on in the record saying, Sorry, guys, I didn't realize that. I needed you so much. I thought I'd get a new audience. I forgot that disco sucks. Right up front, he's coming out. And content-wise, I'm really enjoying it. Two things. One, kudos to John for saying self-referential without screwing it up. Two, um, moving right along, I think that... I, I agree with what you're saying, but I think that the thing I had, the problem with I had with Back, Back to the Shack is it just kind of had a style that was kind of awkward for me, but very similar to the newer stuff that they had done. However, I do enjoy the fact that he's acknowledging a mistake he made. This is the same man who spent years in the 90s saying he hated his fan base, publicly saying he hated his fan base. And then when the Green Album came around, he went, mm, those things I said. And really, make believe is he wrote a song about pretty much apologizing to the fans because you realize, oh yeah, I kind of need fans. I'm a dick. And and like acknowledging that. So for him to now acknowledge that he pushed the fans away again musically is huge and a big deal to admit in, in your music. There's also a defense for that though. Considering, you know, again, just as we sort of casually dip into the history here, 
intermittently as we go through this album. You know, there's he laid a lot on the line as of let's say that second album, Pinkerton. You know, here was this blue album that all of a sudden enraptured this bunch of fans, and suddenly that's all they ever wanted was just the blue album, the blue album, the blue album. And then he comes out with Pinkerton, something that is deeply personal and probably the edgiest of Weezer's entire discography. I would agree. It not is, even, not it probably, is, definitely. Is. No, I, I, yeah, there's no, not even a question about it. Pinkerton is the kind of album that takes that, that slight rawness that you get in Blue, and then it messes around with form, because Blue was pretty tight in terms of form. It's a much tighter album, actually, than Pinkerton is, and perhaps that's one of the reasons why Pinkerton got panned. But then Pinkerton does get panned, having him chosen to do this, you know, sort of edgy thing, inserting little little inserts between his melodies, kind of cutting-edge stuff that probably would have propelled Weezer in a drastically different direction in the end. And then, well, what, does it ha- what happens? It gets panned. He realizes that the fan base, you know, wasn't looking for that after all. That has got to feel a little bit... Uh, a little bit like a betrayal of sorts, or like the fanship is controlling your life. And we'll get into this at the end of the podcast if you listen to our topic. But that's kind of something I feel is going to keep coming back to here, is that, you know, the fan base is important, and I like that he's referencing it, but I've perhaps had no more sympathy for an artist than in this particular case because of everything I said in my initial intro, how, how Weezer fans can be downright belligerent in their expectations of all their different expectations of what they want Weezer to be. True. I'd like to think, though, briefly just touching on this, that when I'm belligerent about Weezer, it's because I don't like the quality of the music, not the style. Personally. Well, even then, but I had that, you know, comment that there's sort of that, like, as a new, as a semi-newcomer, again, I've been a casual fan, but as a semi-newcomer, I had just heard sort of a more static sound than most people did. You have to really listen to the finer points to get down to the nitty-gritty of what but makes them also, different on album to album. Weezer fans are, are overblowing this, in my opinion. Uh, yes and no. When you're an obsessive fan of a band, you tend to find more intricacies that others won't see. But we'll discuss more of that later. We will. Back to this song, and back to the shack... Uh, all, all in all, in the framework, it's pretty straightforward. It's pretty straightforward. Weezer, they don't. There are no pops and wh- bells and whistles. It's just kind of. Well, we get another solo. This one I'm enjoying a little bit more than the previous one. Um, a really, I, I know this might be a little bit out there, but I love the bridge on this as well. I feel like this is extremely iconic, even more so than "Ain't Got Nobody," and this is exactly what. For personal reasons, I really, really wanted from Weezer. I um, liked the bridge, not as special as the bridges later. I feel like I get, I get what you're saying. Essentially, from this perspective, you're saying that you liked it because you wanted good stuff from Weezer, which, which is there's nothing wrong with that. that. This is the main reason why I had such an sort of an oddball thing for this podcast and yeah. gone into this big spiel of you know what Weezer fans expect because we are among them yes. <laughs> and I have known them and we sort of have to, we have to treat this just because it feels like it should be treated at the same time we have to treat it like we treat everything else what is it doing but it's fair for John to put that out on the table however I think that overall it's a basic song it's okay I don't hate it but they just don't do anything insanely unique in this track but at the same time it's still an infectious beat it's still an infectious song this is what I'm going to get into that's what Weezer does in so many different ways and that's why I'm enjoying it because even talking about it right now i'm going over and over it in my head i already know this song 
and I've only been listening to it for a week. There you go. See, that's the thing I'm going to hone in on. This is the crux of the matter, beyond all this other reference of the fans and whatnot. Let's just talk about the music itself. Coming from the first track here, the first track, it, it, as far as I'm concerned, yeah, it does most of what you just said. It's the track that sort of just sets it up and is like, well, it's Weezer, I suppose. You know, but it doesn't have the hooks, it doesn't have the guitar riffs that makes that song really memorable for me. Back to the Shack succeeds. Okay, it's not, it's not you know, breaking breaking any charts here. But this is a track that we get something a little bit more heavier. We're offering more just as we go deeper into this album. It's got a little bit more attitude than we typically get in, in Weezer, and as far as I was concerned, it had a little bit of a catchier chorus. The lyrics are a little bit more bouncier, and this is a key word here, because this is something I think is a huge perk of why I think Weezer, why I think Weezer is so infectious. Um, coming from my own fandom. Bouncy lyrics. There's just this mannerism that he has with with the melodies that he writes, because he's already a great songwriter, that they kind of just, they have this cadence to it, that they get stuck in your head no matter what. That's not there in every track, but frankly, it's there in, in at least 80% of his material, and that is a feat to say 80% of your material is catchy, and I'm convinced that is, a, that is around the correct number for Weezer. For, would, for Ribs Cuomo's own song. I would definitely agree with that. And that's I was there again. I was there at that concert on Monday, and it, so many people knew that I have never been to a concert where I, knew, where I visually saw so many people singing along to every single track. Not just the tracks they happened to know or like the best, but every track. And My friend other, James is among them. Another part oh, wow. of his of the, this lyric work is the vocals, and Rivers still has it. This this sounds like so much other stuff. If you enjoyed Weezer's vocals beforehand, you will thoroughly and utterly just hear him again, hear the band again. The vocals are are just spot on with everything that's come before. His voice hasn't changed in twenty years. Yeah, no, it's pretty, it's, it's pretty solid. He can still do the falsetto, even though it doesn't appear too much in this particular track, but it, it's there. Um, the specific little line where I'm referring to that bounciness is, of course, the first line of the chorus. And, and you read the, the lyrics, and you can see how well it caters to that kind of bouncy melody work. Take me back, back to the shack, back to the strat with the lightning strap. That's great songwriting. It doesn't even care what the hell you're saying. It doesn't care, you know, it doesn't matter that it's not, that it's, you know, uh... Forget about meaning, set meaning aside, we've already established that. But just from a, a literary standpoint, that's got so many so many frills catered to the English language that we just don't always see in, in music. A lot of times, lyricists just throw their, their words around, hoping that it will fit the music somehow, and that's all they're worried about. They forget about the poetry. And frankly, if you're going to include lyrical work, you, you better have both, because that's really going to propel your, your music above everyone else's. No, yeah, I, I completely agree with that. Yeah. And I mean, that's why this was the single, ultimately, even though it was doing anything super special. It, it's catchy, it gets in your head, and it's a great lead into the next track, Eulogy for a Rock Band. It also has one more thing going for it, and that's the fact that, you know, there are these, beyond just being self-referential, there's these things that really kind of call back to, I guess, the spirit of the 90s. Let's rock, like, let's rock out like it's 94, clearly going back exactly 20 years to their debut album. And then beyond that, I really enjoy the line where they, they kind of build it up at the end of this track. Well, at least we raised some hell. Which, you know, that, 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 that like places me in, in a Kevin Smith movie automatically right there. It's like, well, if you have nothing else, at least we had some fun. We had some damn good times. I, I like the, just the, the sort of carefree nature of this track. I, I, it kind of, um, kind of warms my heart to see him just taking this so lightheartedly. Well, yeah. And, and like I said, it was a great connecting point to the next track. I mean, 1, 2, and 3 really do link together pretty well. My, my biggest complaint with Eulogy for a Rock Band is that 
it's not so different from from two they connect pretty well but on that level they're also fairly similar um what i do like though is he really expounds on his vocals in this track it's more talking about you know it, this is more self-referential music he you know essentially talking about this death of the sound that they were trying to do and that they're going back to an older sound that may not in fact be true this one is um uh, Rivers is even has talked about this song in particular. He does not say who it is. It may be Weezer. It may in fact be them, but it, it may also bands. be an, another inspirational band or bands. It may be the Weezer of 94 or 2001 or 2010. There is a dead rock band. Which Weezer is it? Yeah. No, it well that because honest, of their but identities honestly, over the but, years. But that honest but that on, honestly that openness adds to the enticingness of the track. If you just say Green Day's dead, they fucking suck. It's a a very harsh statement to say aloud. And B, you know, it, it takes people out of it. Because if you just mention a rock band, all of us, every one of us who listens to music passionately has had a band that they loved who disappointed them. And it's got wholeheartedly. Content. Everyone has that band, at least one, if not more. Keeping keeping this song that open, theme wise, really brings you into it. And that was the strong, the strongest point for the song for me is that you could sing along and kind of be like, "Well, I get this." And that's I've that, been through that. Yeah, and it had another perk for that exact reason, and it's the fact that the music reflected this. Mm-hmm. It's anthemic, and this is not in the same way that we've recently referred to the word anthemic. We all we had that huge discussion back in episode one twelve on anthemic pop. Pop, excuse me. Uh, on anthemic pop. This is not anthemic pop. This is straight up the word, the, the, the instance in which you really should be using the word anthem, and that is to say a national anthem. The melody has this, this, this same kind of slow, easily accessible, everyone hop on board, you don't even have to be in pitch, you can be with us on this one, on this, on this one song. If nothing else, well, that's, that's the, a true anthem. That's the rising and falling, the uh, back and forth of it. It's it's yeah. a lot of highs and lows, highs and lows, just to keep you moving in a fairly uh, safe pattern, but where you can remain within the catchy beat and the catchy lyrics without even really trying too hard. Right. The phrases are slow, they're simple, and they're strong. I and also, like and also the... separated. So, you know, it, 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 it's very easy for you to even hop on board mid-song. You know, if you phase out for a minute, well, you can come back. There's no problem. It, it, it's that kind of accessibility, which I think is a talent unto itself. Not everyone can write melodies like that. Well, it's very, it's, it's very common for people to write things that are that accessible, but also feel kind of soulless. The fact is, this still feels genuine, even if it's not revolutionary, revolutionizing rock music as we know it. Well, that's what, what I just want to get into here, because there's... I would say, perhaps, I would have said that this is too simple if it didn't happen to be effective, but it is effective. It's effective at getting stuck in my head, but that's a different kind of effective. Is it stirring? I don't know. I guess that would be the mark of a true anthem, is if I was truly stirred inside by this this eulogy for a rock band, but I'm not sure it's reaching that... It's not reaching that bar for me, and I know... I know what Weezer is capable of doing. I know how they have been able to sort of stir something inside of me. This seems more like something they wrote for themselves, less than for us. Well, uh, the the lyrics themselves even even can support that, because you have, women were screaming, guys were copying, because you moved the people to sobbing, inspiring. You spoke for the world in your songs. Just that, from a from a poetic standpoint, it's. It's saying thank you, but it's still the way the phrasing comes up, especially towards the end. 
We'll never forget the jams you made, let them fade. It's time that we laid you in your grave, let them fade. It's not just saying thank you, it's also saying thank you, now leave. Like, be done. Stop mm. making albums. Honestly, you know what band this reflects based on the common perception? You too. A band we reviewed very recently. I feel like a lot of fans feel this way. Like, you did great stuff, stop making music, go away. Like, is how a lot of band, and people have felt about that band. And I think it's powerful when you're a fan, of, a really intense fan of a band, you, can you say get good, like this. They can say goodbye. Yeah, it's tough. It's a powerful statement, I think, to say let them fade. It's something yeah. a lot of people will have a hard time letting go. But yeah. ultimately, y you got it. You got to know when to say, you know, there, I, there has not been evolution. Well, truth be told, the reason I stopped listening to System of Down for so long was because their last two albums were so horribly disappointing to me. Hypnotize and Mesmerize? I pushed away the rest of their discography. Regretfully, because I went back to it recently. But for a lot of years, I didn't listen to them because I was so disappointed. Yeah. Because I had such high expectations of that band. Moving forward, though. Well, Let no, I, if I had a period to put the oh, this sure. sentence, then it would simply be that I think this is, I think this is another tr case where it's stirring lyrically. If you read the lyrics, yeah. this, is, this is a very stirring message. And the music really gets close. It gets close to bringing us in in that way. But it's close on more of the predictable stance. Like, you get the predictable everybody knows the anthem and for that reason there's something quarterly that's kind of familiar about this it left me from being i guess truly stirred by the actual music itself i would argue though that you don't need to read the lyrics to get it lyrically the they're a band that sing in a way that it's very easy to pick up the lyrics no you're right it's not it's, yeah, you do no. not need to read the lyrics no you're right this. that's not what i meant it's not yeah. it's not as in like you have to read them it's just you, saying you, take the words for the words yes. outside of the, the notes sometimes but now we move into track four lonely girl which Hands down for me is one of my least favorite tracks on the record. Agreed. And here's why. Agreed. Let me finish. Here's why. Completely forgettable, this song. I didn't remember it. when we, I've listened to this album four times now in total. I didn't remember it time to time to time. And when we listened to it today together, I still didn't remember it. And now, I can't recall what it sounded like. It's, so very, it's, it's tough. That's my I'm problem. Gonna do, there's I'm a gonna lot of... It. I'm going to do well, it. So, baby, come on. I know how to dance. Actually, yeah, now it comes back. Now it does come back. That's all I'm gonna do. Either case, it you know that'll probably be gone for me in an hour. You know, and yeah. and I've heard the song many times at this point. Um, it's not pop. to mention in concert. That's the whole thing. It is so pop oriented. Um, it really doesn't go anywhere. It's extremely safe. It it doesn't experiment, and that I think is the biggest thing. It, even when you get a, a little bit of a solo going on, nothing really happens with it. It doesn't complete the through line towards the end of the song, which is something that Weezer loves to do, which has already happened in, in the previous tracks and happens a lot more later on. I love that about a lot of their music. They take a guitar, they give it anywhere from five to 30 seconds to do something magical, but when the verse comes back in or maybe a bridge comes in, they let the guitar still pepper in that original solo idea with the other things. And I know the part you're talking about too, and this is barely even a solo, this is more of an insert than anything else. This yeah. is a transitionary tool, and that's later in the track. Forget about that for the moment, let's just go out to go, go to the verses itself. Um, we've laid out a lot of criteria so far. I laid out a lot of criteria for which, again, we would be rating... Uh, um, well, just any band, let alone Weezer itself. The things that I know that they're good at. Unfortunately, and I really tried with this track, it is failing on almost all counts. It, it sort of speaks directly to what I said about them kind of having influence from late 50s, early 60s rock. That sort of sweet ode, which is, you know, pleasant for like a high school dance kind of thing. The problem is it's nothing beyond sweet here. I mean, this is the kind of track that Paul McCartney probably would have said, this bores me as of 1964. 
Uh, probably. That's power. That's probably. But and my biggest problem about moving through the song, the instrumental, the the instrumentation you alluded to a moment ago, the the bridge and the solo. My biggest problem with that part of the song is that it's here's hey here's the thing. Like that's the only purpose. No, again, of uh, yeah, no, that's the thing. I, I even refuse to call this a solo. It's not a solo. It's an insert. It is an insert. It but does that, absolutely nothing except to take a slight breather from the rest of this wall of sound. Like I said, it's hey, here's the thing, guys. Here's the thing. Yeah. The breakdown. That's all it is. The breakdown into a uh, a verse where there's only that background guitar, not even a crisp, clean guitar, but like a background supporting guitar playing with his vocals. I love that. That little bit, that was awesome. Mm. But it went nowhere. It did nothing. That's my complaint. I would have... Do a great build. Do something with that. They can do it. They have done it. But come on. It went nowhere. Yeah. That was one of the most telling factors of this song for me. And I sort of also glossed over it. I was going to mention something about the verses and choruses here. And the fact of the matter is, it, it's just it's it's too steady, almost to the point of kind of a, a, a consistent drone. And then beyond that, when you look at the melodies themselves, this is where I really I, this is the part where it kind of like hurt me a little bit because I I'm, I'm saying that they're failing on multiple counts here because, for instance, let's say they don't have enough you know enough groove perhaps in the music, or there is there is you know not really much of a solo going forward, or all these varying other things, but the real killer for me is the melody itself. The melody itself is, is, it's not up to Weezer's own code, it kind of just repeats in these singular phrases. Again, so baby, come on, I know how to dance. Why am the only one here who ever takes it? It's very, it's very just... Robotic. Yeah, I think that's the problem, and I, you know... There's no, there's no personality. If Rivers has nothing else, he has personality. The dude, for, for, for the very typical, archetypical nerd rock star, he has a ton of personality. When he sings Beverly Hills on stage, he acts like a rap star. And it's amazing to watch. He comes out of his shell. He's got personality. There's no personality in this song. It falls flat. And that's the biggest problem and why it's forgettable. It just falls flat. Let's have that moment. Are we missing anything here? Is this another case of irony? I don't think so at all. No, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna go. Uh, I think they just tried try something basic and it, it fell flat. I'm reading into it here. I just don't. I, I like. I don't try think so. I don't think so. It seems like an odd place to suddenly pull this kind of track, though, considering that, yeah, they've had a little bit well, of a slow start, but I said initially that you have to kind of wait for it with Weezer, and, well, we're going to have it in this, well, the next track. I it think, gets better. I think it's a spacer. I don't think it was... I think that they didn't know where to put it, so they kind of just put it there to have a big break between three and five. That's the only <laughs> thing I can think of. I hate those explanations. And speaking, I speaking... Me too, speaking, but I don't know what else to do with it. To track five, I've had it up a here. This song... Oh boy, okay. this song. While we had, yeah, and I just have to, I have to do this. Back to the Shack was the apology. I've had it up to here. Is the where you realize that Rivers is still not, you know, a nice altruistic person. He's still Rivers. Yeah, he's still he's had enough. However, what I want to talk about musically first is that the intro to this song is so strong because. They embrace the best parts of their pop roots and influence with their rock and punk. Mm. One thing that they did great on Ratitude for some of the songs is that they infused them with pop in a way that they hadn't before, whether it's a dancier beat. And this this pop intro has a strutting beat and rhythm. It's, it feels like some of the best pop music from the 80s and 90s. And, and you really get a sense of that right in the intro. 
it moves so well. It's got since that solid groove. Since you mentioned it, and I'll gloss over this really quickly, but obviously Ratitude is the case that I sort of avoided because that's that's the instance that I, I find that most Weezer fans absolutely just just left the building on. That's the one, I suppose, where they felt utterly betrayed on because that's just not the sound they were looking for. So you can cite some of those things as positives in your eyes, but a lot of people just don't go to Weezer for that kind of so sound. But the, and but you could say this in many count. I mean, there's lots of things that Weezer did in their 2000s material that I think, well, you can go in other places for. Um, not all of it. And a lot of times, Weezer sort of, like, leaps out and is still Weezer amongst all these other styles, and they can kind of supersede it. But either case, you know, it's never going to fall back to that the, those core two albums, Blue, Pinkerton, where they were nothing but Weezer, and there was almost nothing else like them at the but, time. But, but that's what I'm saying here, is that this is a more... I, I think a more intelligent and unique approach to what they were trying to do for Weezer. It was a better meld of the sound they were going for and their sound. Let's go into details then. In many ways, obviously, as we just <laughs> concluded, this is kind of the antithesis of the previous song. I mean, this is probably my least favorite track on the album, back to back with my favorite track on the album. This song has this sort of irresistible strut using the same elements that Weezer always uses. And I think that's the kind of the, the point in which I'd argue you on, is that, yes, maybe they introduce a more danceable stuff, but it's still them. I hear them well, That's why I'm this. saying it's a balance of both. I said that. Yeah, okay, fair enough. Fair enough. Um, then let's get down to some interesting music talk. Because the strut that's, that's present here, it, 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 it all comes down to where that riff falls rhythm, rhythmically. You sort of have these, these short rhythmic bursts, like in the second measure of the intro, for instance, just between the first and second beat, the burst falls on the, the third and fourth sixteenth note. Just played really short, really staccato, and it's this in-between work throughout the track that, that, that keeps the track so interesting from a groove standpoint, and that's not even touching melody. We'll get to that in a second, unless you want to comment, John. Uh, you seem, uh... <laughs> I've, I've been trying to get a word edge-wise in here. Hoppin'. Um, well, because of the just the, the overwhelming levels of irony in the lyrics compared to what they're doing musically. All right, let's go to that This first. is one of my favorite... This is probably my favorite song. I'm not sure yet. I haven't decided. But from contenders. the first lines, I don't want to find myself homogenized. I don't want to become the very thing that I despise. Come on. He's already calling himself out on the previous track. But at the same time... I've tried to give my best to you, but you plugged up your ears, and now I just can't take it no more. I've had it up to here. He's calling out the fans for basically discrediting the music he's presenting. You know, it's that in a sense, but it's also kind of like a callback to, I guess, the angst that was present in a lot of their earlier work, in certainly Blue and Pinkerton and, and well... Pinkerton was heaping with angst, and there's this, there's an art form in portraying angst, and I've really, you, you actually skipped over one of my favorite lines here, following that, you know, don't want to become the very thing that I despise, don't want my mommy feeding me culture with a spoon, don't want to end up with as much edge as a balloon. That's, th that's absolutely brilliant. Yeah, it's a great, I mean, great lyric. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a great way to sort of portray that desire to be something unique. Um... Oh, it gets so, you know, amidst, gets my, amidst my meandering intro here where I had to in, in, invoke gratitude, or I should say you had to invoke gratitude, yeah. you know, that's just the thing. The, all, obviously, any artist would, would strive to be unique in the face of things, and the vast majority of the time, Rivers Cuomo does it. But he does it within a certain framework, and that framework is the Weezer framework. There are things that I find in this track that in many ways exceed what he did back in the 90s stuff. 
in many ways because he never got oh. funky. He never got that strut. And this is what I was going to go into next is forget about the words for a second and let's look at the manner in which he speaks this. There is, the melody is written with the exact same strut that the music has. And that's not something I find too much in lyrics. Usually, usually one or the other would get lazy, but here they're absolutely equal. You just take that, that first stanza again, repeat it for the sake of uh, rhythm this time. Don't want to find myself homogenized don't want to become the very thing that I despise. And it's very, this halting, again, using the quavers, using the, 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 these short little bursts and kind of bouncing along. It's got the same bounciness that I referenced as of the second track, as of, bounce to the, as of Back to the Shack, but this time it's going all out. And because it's filled out and intertwined with the rest of the instruments, it's, it's just this perfect unity. It's, it's exactly yeah, what I want. You're glossing over one little thing, and that's the pitch that he reaches as well as he's singing these parts. I mean, I believe Prince. That's, I believe that's later no, in no, this no. track. No, he starts off with that. It's in the verses in the beginning. He's he, he's hitting like Prince level pitch. He's hitting Michael Jackson level pitch. He's he's hitting ranges. I don't think I've really heard from him before as well. I thought this, that, I thought that was later in the verses, but you could be right. It's um because I, I, I thought I thought it was sort you, of stifled in in you know you, in building up like a you, return of the verse. He really gets up there. You actually really hear it even more in the next track too. Not here. Um, like in the next track is when we get that killer for settle, but we'll get to that. Um, because, also because. The big, the big chorus. I love the big choruses, and I really love the guitar solo when we get to the bridgey area, where they usually have a guitar solo or two. Much more solid in this track. A little more creative as well. So it's really engaging. Overall, to kind of tie this whole song together, I agree that as far as getting a song that's super catchy, this is the evolution of Back to the Shack. I feel like Back to the Shack was where it was to prepare us for this, to bring us to that next single-ish level, and I would be shocked if this doesn't eventually become a single, even though I know it's not currently. Well, at the same time, it's also going undergoing movement changes, uh, musical changes, uh, a lot like um, from the Red Album, The Greatest Man That Ever Lived. Yes. Now, that song did it ridiculously. I mean, it had like seven or eight different songs put together, but here it's sort of like we're seeing an evolution of their of, of music going on here, because it's it's pop and it gets rocky, you get a little bit of reggae and punk back into it. You get another emergence of Queen into it. There's yeah. so much going on here. Well, for instance, I, see, I'll give one little pass. For instance, when we get to the chorus, the chorus is a little bit more steady. It's more, you know, back to their sort of steady eighth notes. But, it, it, you know, the, I give it the pass because it contrasts with the verse. So the sort of endemic quality is kind of needed here. It comes naturally, sort of like a rest from the laborious strut. And then we go into the thing you're talking about, the bridge is another level of that strut. It's more downplayed, you know, a little little thinner on the instrumentation, but then the, the, the reggae enters in. At least it would be reggae if perhaps that third triplet there was a little bit more pronounced, but then amidst that, it's also introducing these layers of background harmonies, you know, over this. It, it's, it's, it was a bridge that I didn't expect, considering they had me holy at the verse, and I didn't even think that needed a bridge. But the fact that it... it came along with this, I thought it was actually taking them in a new direction. And mm. and certainly I heard the same Queen influence in this track. Especially it, in the solo, you know, one of my favorite solos on the album. And this is where the guitar truly gets... I, I, I don't like this word because it's lost a lot of meaning, but it gets epic. And this is where I... 
uh, as I said before, they take that guitar and they use it throughout that outro, throughout the the throughout the, the final the build up. Yeah, and it's so nice because the way it's peppered in, it complements yet still contrasts what's going on with the other instruments, what was going on with the original chorus work, and it's so much fun. Hundred well, percent agree, and it's so controlled. It shows a lot of control too, and the context that you're discussing really upholds it. And it's a, and it, and it also perfectly trails off into the actual outro, which. What I love about the outro of the song is that it's kind of very contrary to the rest of the song. It fits and feels very dramatic, but it's so it's essentially a bell ringing, a bell like a bell tower ringing, and the guitar gives way to that, but then that goes without interruption perfectly into the next track. It's like this is the first time I've really heard a really great succinct and precise transition on a Weezer record. I'm sure they've done it before, but they used one sound to go from one song to the other without interruption. Considering they're all very fresh in my head, I think you're right. I don't believe it was ever really done. And so track six is called The British Are Coming, which is one of my favorite songs vocally, at least. It has this bell ringing going right into a marching drum, which you expect when the song is called The British Are Coming. Regardless of what the actual content is, thematically, it's perfect. Um, And then from there gives way to a great beautiful guitar intro that doubles with a piano uh, moves into doubling with a piano that just gives a whole depth within the first 30 to 40 seconds that we had not gotten yet on this record just musically you get a whole conveyance of emotion content and structure within those opening moments just between the the sort of dueling classical acoustic kind of thing yeah, yeah. yeah that's that was it was one of it really was probably the best exposition um probably one of my favorite expositions in terms of uh, most of Weezer's work, although for drastically different reasons for, than, than many of their other expositions. For instance, I still think El Scorcho is one of the best expositions as well, but again, wildly different things. So even though, you know, I may have get, sort of given this overlier that there is this general sameness to their sound, they, they, they really reach out there in, the, in, in strikingly different ways. And this was a this was a pleasant surprise because out of this 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 dueling classical acoustic, we, it, it yields to these joint vocals, just crooning along with the with the ooze in the background, but joined by these by these light piano accents, which was a really really nice touch. From there, we go into the verses, and the verses it's in line with again the title of the track, "The British Are Coming." You sort of get this this sensation a bell a melody that's kind of borrowed out of out of an old shanty or something you might find you know two hundred years ago. It's simple. It's kind of in line with what I said before about the uh, the anthemic stuff, it's like the actual anthem. It's, yeah, it's, it's ballad ballad anthem, sure. Um, and also, it's interesting that the melody was doubled with the electric guitar in the beginning, which is a nice little perk. And then it gives way to the chorus, which is vocally one of my favorite things that that um, Rivers does. And Rivers <laughs> does this emotionally. It's why it's one of my favorite things. What I, what I love about Rivers singing is when he hits a falsetto, he doesn't hit it musically perfectly. I'm doing finger quotes <laughs> even though you can't see them. He, he, he does it so his voice goes up and it even starts to crack crack and get harsh a little bit but it adds so much inflection and emotion in that moment it you feel the raw emotion of him singing those lines it, the 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 control of his pitch is just phenomenal i have to give him props for that because it's it's amazing that he can still do it yeah i couldn't do it he's in his 40s he's been doing this for 20 some odd years i'm surprised 
and not just the levels he's reaching, but the actual ability to change it. Now, this is something I'm really glad that both of you have honed in on, because it's something that I actually forgot to note, but it's probably one of my favorite features about, about Rivers Cuomo, period. Is, is He uses that falsetto so sparingly. You know, it's not, it's not in every single one of his tracks. In general, he has his range, and he kind of sticks to it. But it makes that falsetto so much more impactful, because it's like he's reaching through the utmost... Uh, extremes of his ability in order in order to convey it and that's that's important that's important just to feel that passion in the musician even though it's not as you said you know not music music perfection per se it's it's it, it comes across as music as music perfection just in terms of an entertainment value and plus the song really while it is very much about the American Revolutionary War uh, it's also yeah. a, a, a standard Weezer metaphor for bucking the man, uh, a lot of times Rivers has has done it uh, using his father as one of as, as the main figure of what to rally against, because yeah. uh, he's had plenty of issues with his dad over the years. So I believe they're reconciled at this point. Um, it's 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 really a call to arms, not just you know fight the British, but also fight the institution, fight the man. A lot of things that they've done since Surf Wax America. Yeah, no, it's far more what you're saying in many ways that British are coming is just the front and it's it's the it's the chosen uh, uh, vehicle for this for this thought. And it's just but it also it's the whole package I think that really sells this song overall. And, and the fact that it feels very personal by the way it's presented. Even if it's not thematically a very personal song, though I do believe it is, the way it's presented and packaged makes it relatable. The how he sings it, how it's played, and how it's constructed makes this song from start to finish incredibly relatable. Yeah, no, I, I'm, well, if I had one little, because again, we're really talking about this track, and it's, it's a shame too, because I do love almost, like, 90% of this track. Um, I like the way that, you know, it sort of rockifies this, this kind of shanty melody. Um, I like the way that, that the, the acoustic kind of is, is still there even amidst the rockification. It's, it's sort of interesting in that it never really leaves, it, it, it seems. Um, and also, of course, this falsetto. But I, if there's one thing, I'm going to have to call out the bridge a little bit. The bridge was, was sweet, but it felt just a little bit derailed for this track. Uh, it became a little bit more modern, more like light FM sort of thing. It was it's still great bass and drum work found within it. But, you know, it's, it's just... For that one moment, it felt like they kind of lost sight of this perfect, perfect running package. The, the exact package that you just outlined. It seemed like they did kind of hit a little bit of a bump in the road, where they were kind of just keeping the music going and doing something that seemed right, but wasn't artistically married. Yeah. No, I... It was agree. only that one moment in I, this case. I, I would agree. I don't think it affected me as much, but I see where you're coming from. Um, I think that overall, it's still probably one of my favorite tracks on the record. And speaking of my other favorite track on the record, and this is the only one that I think can really dethrone, I've had it up to here, Da Vinci. Track because, seven. Oh boy, Da Vinci. This is the purest distillation of love they've really ever done. Okay. I gotta go into the, to the premise of this track. Just okay. the exposition, incredibly unique. And again, that's, well... In this case, I think it's right in line with what you would find in, in some early Weezer, but it's in a very different direction again. It begins kind of like a children's song. I mean, it breaks apart these these triads, just a, a first inversion B major, second inversion uh, F sharp major, which is the five chord. And just the inversion work there kind of adds a little bit of spice, and it, it also allows the high note to become the tonic, the home uh, in, in, in the B major instance. 
but it, it's it's interesting when you just break apart that that singular riff it persists throughout almost the entire song and it keeps it so dainty and childlike and innocent and this is totally reflected in the lyrics we'll get into this I think also the song is very much a spiritual successor to Island in the Sun from the Green Album. It just has that very childlike, sweet innocence that Island in the Sun has. Island in the Sun is also a love song, and it's about getting away, getting to that Island in the Sun, getting away from it all. And this song definitely conveys a similar message of young love. But it's a little different but, in that regard. Yes, it doesn't, it doesn't maintain a lover love. It, it has an innocence to it that can be just a best friend, which they've also done. It can be even um, one of my favorite lines on the actual entire album is is this. I like to think that I know quite a lot, but with you it feels like I forgot. I wish that I could explain who you are, but when I try to, I never get far. No, my fa- that is the perfect, perfect, ineffable girl. Yeah, I mean my favorite line is the one about Rosetta Stone. That's in this song, right? The chorus? That's part of the chorus. Even Da Vinci couldn't paint you. Stephen Hawking can't explain you. Rosetta Stone could not translate you. I'm at a loss for words. I'm at a loss for words. And this chorus, see, it's another winner for all of those simple reasons. One being the recurring elongation of the note within this in the the fourth beat of that phrase. So you get that line, for instance, uh, Stephen Hawking can't explain you. Rosetta Stone. So Stephen Hawks, Rosetta Stone, these particular syllables right there are elongated for a considerable amount of time. It's held from the fourth beat until the, the, the two and, you know, the next measure. Three and a half beats, kind of a long time in music land for a melodic note to be held. It, and it packs quite a punch. It serves its purpose. It makes you curious about the words, even if you're not quite, quite prepared yet to sing along. It makes you curious enough you hear Rosetta Stone, well, what, what is that? What, why would he invoke Rosetta Stone? And then all of a sudden, you read deeper into it. Rosetta Stone could not translate, translate you. you. That yeah. is gorgeous. Mm-hmm. What a simple, simple love message. I, li- I like simple love songs that convey a powerful emotion in a few words. Yeah. But it has that innocence in the way the song is constructed as well. It reminds me of, um, uh, what, what's the song they did? Um, Want, wanting You, Wanting Me. I can't remember the name of the track. It's from one of the newer records that... I liked a lot as well, which is also a very innocent love song, singing about coming to meet your parents and going to Best Buy together, and like just it was <laughs> really silly stuff. It was just really silly stuff, but conveying very powerfully how much he cares. Well, even the silly things, and that's just the, even the silly things. I suppose in Young Love can make you downright giddy, and that that giddiness is conveyed perfectly by the the opening riff that I that I uh, th- that I explained that that sort of broken uh, inverted triad. That's that continues throughout. The verses and that that conveys this sort of oddball giddiness. It's accompanied by whistling, for Christ's sake. It's, yeah. it's 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 um it's 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 strange how it can be kind of chilling in a uh, in a in a childlike fashion. And then we go to the outro here. The outro sort of rings out after this final build. We get the single phrase, and it's 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 strange. It's a little bit eerie here. It's kind of not the direction you would expect this song to take. But it, the, the single phrase during the outro sort of emphasize, emphasizes the seventh of the final chord. So you get that interval just traveling the seventh down to the, down to the, the sixth, then up to the fourth. And it's kind of like fades out in this manner. Again, chilling for a children's song for there, all intents and purposes. There's a reason. These three songs are pa- paired together for a reason. Da Vinci is young love. Go Away is an evolution and falling apart. And Cleopatra is the I've had enough and I'm moving on. It's the evolution of this love. It feels that way anyway. Now looking at it 
a little bit from distance. The next track after Da Vinci that I just mentioned is Go Away, which is an actual duet. Though I wrote Duel for some reason. They're not dueling. It's a duet. Um, <laughs> and uh, John, had, didn't you write down the female vocalist who's featured? I don't remember. Uh, the female vocalist is Bethany Consentino. And so part of the band Best Coast, a fairly new band. Uh, she sings the female to uh, to his Kimo's male. male. <laughs> um, it's 1950s rock. This is duet. my biggest problem with the song, and why it's a little bit of a down note for me. It's not bad by any means, though. I feel like I have a soundbite of that from every week. Um, it, but it, that early rock sound, I just felt like it kind of knocked me out of what I was feeling from the previous tracks. Yeah, I, but you remember it, and this is probably the most infectious of the songs for me on this entire album because it's so God, simple. Me it's too. so simple. It's it's what's the chorus? Go away, go away. Go away, go away, go away. I mean, it's just, it's in there. I can hear it right this moment. This is the proof that simplistic doesn't always reach infectiousness, even though we frequently cited it as such. Sometimes simplistic is just simplistic, and it can sometimes reach reach boring in its simplicity. For me here, the problem with this song, I think, is mostly that it's just okay. It moves well enough, and I like the duet. I think the female vocalist has a beautiful voice. I don't think anything is done particularly badly. I just think that... That early rock and roll sound for Go Away, it's just not what I wanted after those last three tracks. I was so invested, and this kind of took me out of it a bit. Let's Overall, it's still a good track, and it's entertaining, but I just I didn't get that feeling. Let's go into details here. I mean, one of the reasons we're just citing this throwaway as like, oh, it's a 50s track, you know, it has to do with that, that, that quality and, you know, the go away and really separating, throwing in like an extra syllable there where there doesn't even need to be one. This sort of just like kitsy wootsy little go away, go away. Now, I'm not saying they're the only band that's ever done it or that it's only been done in the 50s. Other bands borrow it too. For instance, the Decemberists do it. Colin and Jenny would occasionally join in to do these little innocent sways, and it was kind of sweet. I actually thought of that example before I thought of the 50s stuff. But in that case, the Decemberist sort of incredibly unique, rounded folk style kind of fluffed it up a bit. In this case, you don't have that. You're just left with the bare bones. And that makes it hard for me to get into this duet, duet as sweet as it is. Um, maybe, and this is kind of a superficial reason, but maybe another reason is the the jarring factor of just simply having another vocalist there since I've only known Weezer. I mean, I don't think it's that jarring just because it's typical on rock albums to have a duet. I mean, I've heard it before. It's not super uncommon. But there, but there is, no, but there is a mansion. It, is, it isn't as common nowadays. I would argue that, but that's fine. It's well, not it, worth starting an argument now. It, it's, I know, I'm, I'm, it's not really a matter of commonality. It's a matter of, of execution. For instance, I, I actually had this this little gripe as recently as an album that I otherwise really enjoyed, and that was uh, with Eric Neff's, um, you know, at the at the end of the day. Wasn't that at the end yeah, of the day? at the end and of the day. And this is Everything Will Be All Right in the End, kind of similar things. Anyway, there was a track, Valentine, in which he decided to just throw in a duet, and you hear a female vocalist. Only track on the entire album where you hear another vocalist. And, you know, it's not just... It's just the fact that someone else is there sometimes can jar you if it's not executed properly. For instance, the only case where I can think of uh, of it really being done well was uh, the final track on on Kings of Convenience, Ride on an Empty Street. Final track there, it actually featured, I, I think it was Feist. I believe Feist was the, was the vocalist. And she came in just for the final round. That, that was tasteful. This I, is more of a call and response thing, which is just... 
odd to suddenly hear in the middle. I this just, is why I, I, I view it as a tell me more, tell me more rendition yeah, from Greece. Yeah. I, that's the first thing that Actually, I went through my mind. I, and I see that 100%. That's, you know, <laughs> probably it was the melody, the melodic style was lifted a little bit. You yeah, but I just don't think it's as jarring as you're putting it. But maybe that's just me and my personal tastes. I'm always welcoming to you. Well, those are two separate. Don't dis- those are two separate points. Yeah. I mean, he's talking about the 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 actual quality of the music, the melody itself, and I was just talking about the presence of her. Voice. And it's I I don't dislike this. That's really what it sums up for me. Yeah, but and I all think you it's, have it's to... catchy. I'm gonna hum along to it. I'm probably gonna skip it more often than not when listening to the album. It comes down to what I said earlier on. I don't go to Weezer for this. Yeah. And sometimes that can seem overly harsh. And I've 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 made this very clear as how Weezer fans and well apparently even new Weezer fans can can sort of get overly harsh in this department. But there is the question of knowing what you do best. You know when you can be so so uh, self-analytical, then it allows you to further the best of what you do. I already said that probably the, the best of the most original work that you can't really find anywhere else is found on Pinkerton. Doesn't mean that the stuff that they did earlier on the Blue Album or the stuff they did later, let's say on Maladroid, isn't great, you know? But there are other bands that do the same kind of thing. So if you want them to be unique, it's not going to be achieved with this. I mean, on a final note, I think when John, all he has to say about it is that I liked it. We don't yeah. have much to, else to say that's kind of a negative It means overall. it's non-offensive. Yeah. I think this Which is I, another was one. one of yeah. the first words I yeah, threw, threw yeah. around. We'll, we'll just sum it up as that. Yeah. It's, it's that. I said that word had multiple connotations, too. I think this is a good point to move on to Cleopatra, though, which is the follow-up track to this, where I did get pulled back in. So track nine, Cleopatra, is the second single off the record, and this is a song that actually progresses, and it has a more unique style than what we had had right before it. Um, clearly, it starts with this kind of unidentifiable sound that I can't place, which obviously well, it's kind means... kind of a guitar rumble. I mean, the guitar, the, the acoustic guitar, well, between the acoustic and the electric, it sort of creates this rumble in the background that, that it doesn't necessarily build. It's there as just a soundscape. It, it, it's, it's just there, but it's great for exposition work because it starts on the five chord, just to start. A little bit of tension is created with this because along with that, the melody just sort of begins... Uh, with, well, might as well read it out. We grow old, our hearts are dim, but our minds are free to fly where they will. Your beauty is faded, you are a broken shell. It's the only, it's only the weak that fall for your spell. And within this, he falls, you know, on the seventh of the chord with amidst this rumble, and then all of a sudden, we get the one on a dime. But before that, and this is an interesting, probably the the best hook you could possibly, or or that Weezer um, could possibly produce, this is I don't hear a lot of rhythmic variation in Weezer, in general. And it's not to say that this is a huge uh, quirk, but it's an interesting one. Because just between the verse and the chorus, there's this one measure thrown in here where all of a sudden, we're not in 4-4 anymore. And believe me, for most of Weezer's discography, we are in 4-4. Then all of a sudden here, 1-5-4 measure. Just to tide it over so that he can cram in... You can't control me no more, Cleopatra. Perfect. And that's what he enters in with. And, and the speed, the, the, the variation—it's exactly. so it's, it, 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 it's it's jarring but enticing. Yeah, it's just the, so much to the point that you you barely even notice. You know that, that that what you said you could say jarring. Normally, whenever you have these oddballs, just like oh, let's throw in an extra beat here, then it can be jarring. But considering that line, you can't control me no more, Cleopatra. Like you forget about it. You just forget it. You're going along with the flow, and all of a sudden, he's now taking you beyond the me- the, the mechanics of the music. You're just involved in the song. Yeah. 
And it, it and it really makes for a very engaging chorus, skipping that, having that one moment. Because it's not so noticeable that you're like, hey, wait a minute. It's just noticeable enough for you to acknowledge the vocals and the lyrics. And I think that's where it gets its real let's strength. Get to, let's get to the vocals, too, because I, the, the melody itself for the chorus, obviously, it's really just that line. You can't control me no more, Cleopatra. But then he sort of just echoes the final the Patra, Patra. Oh, the, and he that, echoes that it in varying, it varying intervals. He oh, starts so much fun when he's he's just fooling around with that 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 pair of syllables. He's, and he's drawing them out and bringing them in and making them elongated rising to just high pitch again. And to, one of the other band members, I, at least I believe it's one of the other band members, I don't think it's just him doubling it. He no, usually yeah, use, utilizes backup. their backup. Um, and, you know, they step in with these varying intervals. And he himself, he really pushes the boundaries here. I mean, it's not crazy stuff, but it, it, it comes across, especially when you take into account the echo. For instance, he goes, you know, from the three to the one, if you take this in uh, E flat, then he certainly goes E flat minor, three to one, then suddenly six, five, and then... 3-1 again, but sometimes it's 3-1 in the next octave. And it's these, these far-reaching things that, that once, you, once you figure that out and you know how to, how to phrase, that thing itself is not complex. The execution of it and the organization of who goes where when you decide to go to that next octave or when you decide to retreat and say it low again when the backup vocalist decides to come in when he decides to let's say take the three one or the six five this organization really it that's that's the glue that holds this together that's that's the the creme de la creme of the the progressive track that moves somewhere and well, moves you through the emotions on the way there's there's another emotional section with the bridge the, that's the a whole other animal. Almost thrashy, kind of metal-oriented. It's not kind uh, of thrashy or metal. 20. It was metal. That that bridge was a lighter side, but it was metal, hands down. And it was interesting to jump to that from the chorus, which is what really blew me away. It shows that little bit of anger that's still present in him as he brushes off this woman, as he says, "You're you're done. I'm done with you. I I'm no longer under your spell." That's one of the lines. I'm no longer beholden to your whims. Mm. It's Cleopatra. This is the most beautiful queen who ever lived. I mean, she's on a pedestal, but she's faded. She's gone. She's done. You're older, you're colder. The spell is broken. 5, 10, 15, 20, 25, 30. It's, it's, you know, it's interesting. That you even, I wanted to get into this because it's interesting that you would call it the bridge here because this is probably the only instance, um, one of the only instances that I would actually cite an all-out B section when it comes to okay. to Weezer. And it, see, this is, it's interesting because you can go in two different directions here, and it's very easy to fall off the map uh, in either direction. One is you stay so safe and you, you know, just continue along with your verse, choruses, verse, chorus, bridge, chorus, bridge, you know, that same style that everybody just knows and loves or hates. That's going to probably ruin you at some point if you just can't break free. Then there's the other problem we've encountered, where you create sections that seem divorced and seem like they're not connected in any way. Now all of a sudden you've left the song. Where are you? You know, you wrote that at some other time and you're trying to just slap together. This is the case where you prove that, well, you're in the middle. You're in the middle ground. You've created something that is new and bold, and it invites you to sort of recreate the song anew in your head. You said right immediately that you you would took it as metal and. It was hitting you hard. It, you were loving it as it went along. All of a sudden, it's this this kind of a thrash, at least as thrashy as Weezer would get, amidst an otherwise markedly romantic track. 
And, well, not and, romantic, but but but. Oh, the way he echoes out Cleopatra, Patra, but I, especially using the intervals that I referenced, I think it comes across as highly romantic, at least in tone. Okay, I mean, but he, this is like an ending relationship. This is not a salvaged relationship. Well, it's a, it's it's a not... faded beauty more than anything else. A faded love. I mean, it is romantic, but it's nostalgically romantic. It's not. Yes, exactly. It's wishing exactly. for something. When better. I when I say the word romantic, the I'm not referring to the puppy love that we explored in the last track. Yeah. This this also has. A fusion with that B section as it goes into the outro, yeah, which the outro shows is a nice mix of both. It's 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 got a depth to it that's just so much fun. Just a little bit of that thrash in with the the can't control me no more uh, repetition towards the end, and then bringing back in that five, ten, fifteen, twenty with a little bit of the more lighthearted uh, earlier A section thrown in. It's it's a great combination of back and forth, back and forth. Showing the blending of the happier times with the jadedness, with the anger. It's, it's, it's great. I love that combination. And that's why I want to go back to your, uh, your, your exploration of the theme just across these, two, uh, these three tracks. Because there was, um, first of all, I just said the puppy love in the last track. I should have said the puppy love lyrically in the track before that. Yeah. And the puppy tonalities that you get in the previous track. That's because I was actually talking about, about uh, tone at that particular moment. I yeah. think the previous two are both very fluffy, regardless of the fact that there is this progression here. This progression lyrically that's moving it through each stage, yeah. from the actual puppy love stage, where you're just enamored and you don't care about anything else, into the moment where you're trying to kind of solve it, into the moment where it's done. But I clearly, there's, there's, more, there's obviously bound to be more passion in the final track, and sure. it shows. I wouldn't even say that the tracks themselves are connected as a single story. But I would say it's that they're all they're not even moments. I would say that they're just different loves of his life. I wouldn't Could I wouldn't be. I wouldn't focus sure, on but the, but, but, as an actual progressing story. No, I'm not actually That's focusing not what we're on saying. It, okay. it's more we're just of saying okay. tonality. Wanted to clarify that. No, tonality. No, in this case I'm actually talking about tonality and lyrics. But it's right. not that I'm viewing it as the singular story, but that the fact that the three of them are 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 slapped together is to discuss the broader concept of a relationship, yes. not one in particular. I'm sure each one probably reflects three different relationships. I'm sure about that. But, you know, the effect is all the same. A lot of... The, most people in the world will probably go through one of these three things, if not all. Yeah. And, and this, so they got to be chronological. But the thing is that this song ends in a very particular way, and then thematically it moves to a song that's very removed from this idea. Well, maybe not. It's, it's removed... Texture-wise, maybe to some extent, but it, it's if you're gonna sum up this album up until this point, including Foolish Father, this song is all this this album is all about relationships. Yeah. Whether it's River's relationship with the fans in several instances, with the industry. Whether, whether it's the relationship of individuals with authority figures, whether it's relationships of man and woman, or father and daughter or father and son, or what have you. This song, these album, it's all about the different relationships. And Foolish Father is no different. And this is a heartbreaking song half the time because this song has beautiful verses. Fractions of the time and intermittent fractions of the time because there's a problem here with disjointedness and that occurs on multiple fronts. So the song starts with a very heavy rock sound. It's very much intense and pleasantly dark as I put it you know it, it definitely conveys this kind of overwhelming 
it seemed emotion. like it was going somewhere. Yeah. But to be honest, it, it in context, it comes across as being overly epic, and this time I use the word in, in, in the mal sense. Because then we go on to the verses, and the verses include a melody, which I had a problem with for only a very superficial reason, and it's only because it sounded so familiar, it specifically reminded me of uh, Gorilla's Feel Good Ink. It almost seemed dead on, except for the end of the phrase, actually. It felt kind of flat there. But, apart from that, there's just not a lot, you know, really grabbing me here. It's still it's still enjoyable, but the real disjointedness enters when we go into the chorus. There's a quality here where I just did not feel like it tied together. This is the instance that I mentioned before, where you can write sections that seem to fit the framework. They seem to fit the pop framework, but then you just do not go bold enough. Uh, in this case, they went just enough that they were divorcing themselves from the track, I think, or divorcing themselves from the tone, but not bold enough to incite you with this new appreciation for a new section and, and wow you in the face. Yet, the, yet. the chorus is just, it's bland in that regard. And this, this recurs repeatedly when you go back and forth between the two. But, but when you look at, the, especially that second verse, it's, there's so much depth here that they're trying to convey that I think they do accomplish very well with the verses if taken singularly. Think of how destroyed he feels walking to his grave plot, knowing that the one he loves hates him with all her heart. Dude! Oh man, that's just heavy. mess. That, that's so, like, I, I will say, heart throat. I will say <laughs> that the disjointedness could be intentional in the sense that when you're d- talking about a dysfunctional relationship with a parental figure, it's often disjointed. And maybe that dichotomy between the verse chorus is intentional, but that's really grasping at straws here. The reality is, as an overall song, I feel it doesn't work great. It's not awful, but you do really get knocked out of what it's trying to convey when you hit the choruses. There are cases where I can accept that kind of... That, that kind of uh artistic justification and this time I don't think it really adds up particularly well because when you look at the lyrics here the, the the thought of the matter is pretty straightforward front to back it's not as if this is going through different phases right you can assume from the lyrical content that there has been different phases in the past that there has been more hatred but ultimately the song is really saying he did the best that he could you are his daughter he'd do anything for you anything for you anything for you in the end everything will be all right in the end this is the culminating message of the album it seemed like it should have been a little bit more organized front to back from the musical standpoint. Because then we get things like uh, like the bridge. I mean, after the chorus, which feels like it just wasn't tied, it was kind of an empty anthem, we get the bridge, which is more of the rock anthem. It's a little bit heavier. Then we get these interludes. The the guitars, they just sort of take these, these two notes and rock back and forth, and then you get some little harmonization in there, but it's not as if that single two-note motif was a strong enough thing to go back to. It's not, you know, the same kind of motif that I was immediately drawn into back in, uh, back in, well, several earlier instances of this track, like, for instance, The British Are Coming, like I've had it up to here. All of these had motifs that I could readily, uh, grapple onto on the musical front. Here, two notes in a guitar is just not really gonna have it. It doesn't matter how you harmonize with it. Yeah. The but, old- but there is something that I, I really do want to point out, and that is, this is sort of like the antithesis of Say It Ain't So, which was just Rivers calling out his father and all the effed up stuff he went through and being so angry with him. This is the opposite. This is the pity. This is maybe a little bit of forgiveness on his behalf, 
But for the most part, this is instead of it being sounds angry, pretty bitter. Bitter, yes, but more. It's not mean about it. It's not the anger is gone, and now he's just moving on to something else. Right. I mean, I can see that. I don't know. Just overall, for me, the song fails to convey completely the emotion that it's looking for in this these final moments. Um, I do feel, though, it does give way to three very strong songs. Whoa, whoa, wait. Before that, we get some final moments here that really cement the concept I have for this album thus far. And that is the repetition of the title. That is the choir coming in and saying, everything is going to be all right in the end. That is a very important part of this song. Because while... Oh, yeah, I did mention Fo- that. I kind of glossed over, but yeah. <laughs> Foolish Father doesn't have the impact but that choir while at times you can say it's a little hokey to have choirs i mean it it sort of is here i think it's it's just used expertly to to really just to create emotion i i will say that the wrap-up of the song is the strongest part of the song i'll agree with that it's just it's just it's a problem of disjointedness and i think i'll, I'll kind of leave it at that there, there's usually you know you'd be on a bit of a journey by the time you get to that point. And I think yeah. that's the problem, is that I've sort of been on a bit of a confusing journey. And again, I'm speaking strictly from the musical standpoint uh, right. before I get to that point, that all of a sudden this sort of one last hurrah is kind of odd to me, I think. I guess, but it, it, it isn't a terrible setup for the, the final three songs of the record, which can pretty much be one giant song. So the final the final three songs of the record Particularly are... Particularly the outro also, because yes. there's sort of this unraveling that occurs at the end of Foolish Father, like like the spaceship is landing or something. It's this weird uh, weird effect. So John told me that the, the actual last three songs have a name. They're called... The Future Scope Trilogy. So they're all labeled with Roman numerals. Track 11, 12, and 13 have a 1, 2, and 3 in front of them. And the first part of this three-part track, essentially, that flow right through from one to the next, if not looking at them, you'd swear it was one long song. The first one is called 1, The Wasteland. Completely instrumental. And this is where we get a a more experimental sound, at least for Weezer. Certainly for Weezer. It's the, the sparse. It starts with the sparse drum work and this wailing guitar sound. It's approaching ambience, if not actually getting there. It's a. It's, it's weird. Well, it's not ambient. It's I mean, there, there's a, there's it's a, there's a, there's approaching. A... It's saying hi, hello. We're ambient. <laughs> no, the only way that, that the, I mean, frankly, I can't even entertain that because that assumes that there that it's melodyless and you're left with sort of just a soundscape. But the the soundscape is still Weezer. It's just Weezer exploring exploring co- cooler things, perhaps things that, you know, again, I refer to the, the Queen-esque, uh, Brian May-esque guitar style that, uh, that their guitarist seems to be invoking. Um, it, also, just a little brief mention about the title. I was totally waiting for some kind of, uh, some kind of comparison for this to be related to T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland, uh, but uh, I can't find anything to that effect. I Considering think, it's an instrumental, I, but I, I think, doubt I will. It is giving it a soundscape, though, and I think the wasteland is very much conveyed in the sound work. I think instrumentally, this is one of the more brilliant tracks on the record because they convey very strongly a scene just with the music. One of the it's reasons. So, ooh, the guitar work, and this is where I, I thoroughly and uh, enraptured with this part. It's the build that the guitar goes through throughout this whole minute and a half long song or so, um, continuously reaching different aspects of what they were doing in the entire album and exploring new 
avenues of, of just what their solos were. I'll tell you exactly what's happening here. The, the first of all, obviously we're uh, we're in B flat, and it is harmonic minor here. Not just minor, harmonic minor. What's the main difference between harmonic minor? Well, you throw in a little bit of a sharp seven. This sharp seven kind of adds a little bit of an exotic quality to just your basic minor. So then amidst this, like, this landscape, the sparse drum work kind of colors it up, and I can actually see, come to think of it, how you mentioned this earlier, John, how it, it comes across as being a little bit Pink Floydian. And I now see this especially with, with relationship to that drum work especially. But then if you're just looking at the guitars, as I said, it's really more broaching the avenue of Queen because it's exploring some of the more exotic territory, and I, I can actually recall several instances in which they would kind of explore harmonic minor a little bit. But amidst that, just talking about the thing you you were discussing, this sort of progressive rising, in, in these guitar solos, you get this, this, this scope, this intonation, this sort of whammy intonation, and the timing of it caters itself to this, this Queen style, but then it starts moving up in the harmonic in the harmonic minor scale, you move up in like relative motion, which means you keep all of the notes of the scale the same, but you kind of explore the next key up. For instance, if you start up in minor, well now you're exploring sort of a major, then you're exploring the Dorian, and then you go up to Phrygian, and you kind of explore these varying these varying stages because you're sort of changing your tonic as you go along. Not in a brash way, because it's really just sort of moving up within the scale, but that one section you're talking about, where it rises up and it feels like something is about to lift off, where it feels like this is the great, the great exposition for a massive epic tale. That is all utilized through this, this relative motion up starting from harmonic minor, and it was a really, really cool effect. Again, not something I typically hear in Weezer. Yeah, and I think that also the song overall as a whole, even though a minute or fifty seconds or so, or a minute and a half, really does give way to when it when it deconstructs the connection to the second part of this three track opus, um, which is two anonymous. It gives way to this beautiful piano, almost Ben Foldsian. You said another name. Elton John. Elton John. No, not, not really Belton, uh, Ben Folds. Actually, yeah. I said specifically uh, Elton John and Paul McCartney. Paul it has, McCartney. It has that p- piano style to it. I felt very much like I was thrown back to the 70s here. As, as if Queen didn't do it enough in one respect, this is doing it in another. And, and also contains moaning or just humming, harmonizing with everything else. The softest drums I've heard on the album, and those drums right there, as they start getting introduced and added just a little bit here and there, add a whole new level of mystique to this piece. Uh, goes into a classic chorus build. It evolves. And this is one of the biggest things that, that happens in this song. While the guitar was doing interesting things, here, the guitar is the forefront of the evolution of what this piece, Anonymous, goes through. Because it's soulful, yet rocky, and it goes into truly rock. It goes into punk. It goes into grunge. It's got it's all over the map here, and the guitar is at the forefront. The guitar is setting the tone, and everything, half a step later, tries to catch up with it, and does it so well that it's it's just flowing from one aspect to the next, to the next, to the next. And it also gives way to the only vocals that we have. Well, obviously there's that, but again, I've got to hone in on what John said here, because he's talking about... See, he's sort of finding these things, and there's always this musical explanation behind it. I just talked about relative motion in the previous track. Well, here, get to talk about parallel motion. Because as we go from one section to another in this track, we start out much more positive. 
It's not exotic in that same harmonic minor sense that we were in the previous track. We start out more in F sharp major, just very, very unifying. So obviously, we, you were going to bring in in lyrics here. There's this sense that you know a choir should occur here. Everything is just you know this is more of the pop anthem kind of thing, but it's more the rock anthem than the pop anthem. This is something that you probably would compose for a rock opera if or rock operas were still a thing. Thing like another brick in the wall does where it gets very chorusy with children singers yeah, but so you it's, know. it's appropriate to throw around these massive names like yes. elton or paul mccartney or queen or floyd um because it's kind of what weezer's doing maybe it's a little late to the party in this sense but frankly it's kind of cool to see that they can yeah i think i i appreciate this from an effort standpoint more so than anything um but back to that parallel motion here because we get a split somewhere halfway through this track where all of a sudden we just change on a dime to f sharp minor Blatantly, F-sharp major, F-sharp minor. This case, it's the exact opposite from what I said before. Same tonic, right? Same key. We're not moving around the... We're not moving around the... Uh, the scale. The, the scale. We're not moving up and down. We're staying in the same tonic. We are changing the key in that particular instance. We're changing it from major to minor, and it gives it kind of this static but different effect. It's kind of a weird motion where you are you're actively changing the mood on a dime in less of a subtle fashion but actively. This is coupled with some of the lyrical work because while it's not really exploring too much depth here, it's all about the anonymous. The person, I don't even know your name. No, I don't know the words to say. So I call you anonymous. My anonymous, my anonymous. So I thank you my love. Thank you, my friends. Look into the eyes of my enemy. It's all just a gift that I'm going to give you. I find it's, that there's so many things going wait, wait, back wait. and forth. I, I find that, that really interesting, just because of the fact that it's 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 strangely ironic, and the fact that it's anonymous and this this massive epic tale built around it, this this musical masterpiece exploring the name anonymous. But it's not even that. He's addressing his fan base. The different aspects within anonymous that he addresses is his fan base: the good, the bad, the ugly. And I think that's a really great way to kind of put it. I think that's what it looks like anyway. This idea that he's not only addressing his direct relationships, the people he knows, but he's also addressing the people he doesn't. But kind that of can what you mean turn. he's you mean you mean up until this point we yeah. we've explored like all these varying different sides and he tries to unify the two concepts in the end. I think that's so. cool. Yeah, I think that. I wouldn't even go I took it in a little bit of a different way because I know a little bit of the history of of uh, what happened during the recording of this album and I know that Rivers did actually can reconcile with his father towards the end there's a little bit of anger in the repetition of i know know what to call you towards the end the music changes it goes a little bit oh, darker so you think a little bit he's deeper. calling his I father think anonymous call, and then figuring out actually who he especially is especially after some decades of not really knowing his dad of his dad being re removed from his life just a little bit of history on you i think it's i think it's that okay. anger Present here. Well, I think that I think it. I think what I like about it is that you can kind of find what you will, regardless of what he meant. You can kind of move fluidly through it because it's it's open enough. And this is really one of the most interesting ideas Weezer's ever explored because, for the most part, their concept for a song is very straightforward, very clear cut. There's not a lot of depth. You may have depth in: Are you talking about a girl? Are you talking about a wife? or an ex-wife, or this or that or the other thing, but the subject matter tends to be within a very confined realm. Here, it's a lot more open. It's sort of becoming the, the, the explanation of the album itself as opposed to just 
an explanation of a single idea. So as I said before, they only knew two avenues up to this point. They either have to get really bizarre and grungy like they did in Pinkerton, or they're going to get really poppin' crazy, perhaps even, I mean, poppin' and perhaps overly simplistic like they did kind of in Ratitude, and like they did in some of their other more, more Weezer-ish creations, even still, the pop structure's just not changing. Here, they took the third route. They took the third route that I guess no one even assumed they could even they could even attempt. There is a, and I, I don't say this this lightly, this track and, and most of this final trilogy kind of broaches Muse I in, would agree. In, in scope. I would agree. In, am, in ambition, for sure. I agree. And the third track really wraps it up. The, the 13th track, which is the third track of this trilogy, tra uh, Roman numeral three, Return to Ithaca. It's another instrumental track, but they strip it down. They don't, they don't make it as complex as the first two. They're bringing it kind of back home to we, the Weezer we know, but still doing something a little different with it. It, it feels almost finite, final, but not completely. It's almost an iconic idea of what a closing is. A, a closing track for a, a story, a concert, and the album itself it rises, it falls. It rises, it falls. It does this over and over again. You can see it from indie movies to a nice magnum opus Broadway show. There's so much going on here. I don't feel like the credits are quite rolling, but this feels like a summation. Well, this is kind of combining two different features of the previous tracks. I mean, this is, first of all, we're, we're, we're back in F-sharp major, just like we were in the beginning of Anonymous. And then we return to sort of the relative motion that we had back in the first track, back in, in, in Wasteland. So Wasteland, we were in B-flat B harmonic minor, and we were going up and down relatively. Well, now we're in F-sharp major, and we're going up and down relatively, because it's trying to sort of do the same thing in an, in a, in a, in an outro sense, just as that was doing, just as Wasteland was doing in an exposition sense. It's trying to kind of give you the... the the super massive wrap up and explore the various sides of their particular of their particular tonic as it were but what i really love about this final track is the very final moments they do something that you don't actually hear a lot and it's very simple but it impacted me at the end patrick's doing a drum roll he's drumming around and doing a drum solo thing and hitting all over the place you know the type of thing that is a very concert style arena rock wrap up to a song, you know, building, 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 and you usually get one final note, but they don't give it to you. I he, love he it. He builds the drums yeah. up and then stops. And what I love about that is that there's an ending, and they're saying essentially just this. This is an ending, but it's not the end. They, and they, they do it the just it's, with it's that note. They leave the period. the period off. If you think so. <laughs> I think so. I think it's intentional, and I like that. They kind of leave you hanging at the end. It's a conclusion, but it's not the final conclusion. No, I'll buy that. And really, I mean, in, in many ways, this was probably the best of the trilogy. I mean, in terms of in terms of what it does, it's, it's the most overblown. I mean, especially during that moment when they're sort of going up relatively. It's rapid triplets on the way. You know, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. It's, it's over and over and over again. It's, it's, it's a little bit... It's a little bit much for, I suppose, the average Weezer fan. It's, it's, it's. They're so you're so accustomed to sort of saying in, in this, in this, I guess, kind of typical pop framework that as good as it can get. I, I, I gotta say, this was one of the main problems that I had going into Weezer from the very beginning. Is that to be honest, at the end of the day, at the end of the day for me, that is, this is, it's, it's safe stuff 
from a lyrical content uh, from a lyrical perspective they go a lot further they've always gone a lot further from the lyrical perspective this is something that i think is moving them in the best direction they could they could possibly move at this point i mean again you're never gonna get blue in pickerton again so drop it <laughs> or green or make-believe or maladroit or yeah even that stuff that's interesting because they were moving with the times at that point but hell maladroit i mean that's dated for today it's yeah. good it's good stuff still right but you know that's not what that's not the way rock is headed right now frankly i don't know where rock is headed and rock may not even be headed in rock that's another thing that this album kind of has going for it which you've repeatedly cited matt you know whenever we come across a a a blatantly rock album that you just can't classify as anything else well you know what at least it's rock we just haven't had rock lately everyone's going alternative and be honest i still think that's kind of the future i still think that that rock has not you know there's not always too much to explore in these various things that we've explored in certain respects for the past 50 years but you know what Weezer's proving we can still do it in some ways and we can still do it in the Weezer way why don't you tell us more Steve no no I'm going last Oh, well, shall yeah, I? Yeah, I, I was kind of I queuing wanted, I you wanted without to, queuing I wanted you. to break up my little uh, thing, though. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, I don't so, want to be a wall of sound, although I usually am. Usually. So why don't you wall of sound us, wall of sound us your, your wrap-up? Matt right. has no idea what to go with this. No idea. I need uh, time. You need time. Okay. <laughs> I'm buying time. All right. Because I'm in between this and that, so. 425. 4.25. Yes, this is probably a little bit unlike what our usual pattern is. Usually we give our wrap-up and then we wait with bated breath for the number while I'm just giving out the number. I think this sums up pretty well what we've been saying so far. I believe this is a better-than-average album, but it has it has dips. It has dips, but the dips even themselves, you know, they're still enjoyable. But there's only a couple of them when you really think about it. First track, eh, but then there's Lonely Girl, and then there's, you know, found a, a Foolish Father. Um, maybe one more in there, but uh, beyond that, you're looking at some pretty damn catchy songs. Really catchy songs that I think, I think hype this up the extra point. There's also the other thing, um... Well, they have the other two things, actually, which is really the two ways in which we rate music, and it should be one more than the other. The one that's more than the other is, well, this album compared to the rest of music out right now. Um, that's one that I'm going to actually kind of stew on for just a little bit. I'm kind of going to let your, your points determine in one way or the other. But I've spent a lot of this talking about Weezer compared to Weezer, because I know that a lot of people probably listening to this are people that have known Weezer, and they just want to hear more opinions on Weezer. It's probably not going to be a newcomer. Again, I'm kind of an oddball for this reason. I mean, I, I, I knew their singles. I enjoyed their singles. I enjoyed them. I don't know if I enjoyed them enough quite yet to go through the discography, but for the sake of, of, of going to the concert, for the sake of this review, I was pleasantly surprised. I don't think I've ever had this, this sort of um, overwhelming, like, instantaneous... I don't really know if I want to use the big L word yet, but, you know, I, I supremely enjoy this band. I supremely enjoy them just as far as, as, as catchy stuff that you just don't get all the time, and they're trying to do nothing but what they're doing. That's it. They're trying to do nothing but give you a catchy song. And I said all of this in my intro, so I don't think it's really worth repeating right now. For that, I think this is the perfect modern Weezer album possible. That leaves that extra point seven five. You know, that keeps this from being an upper echelon, uh, higher-reaching, paradigm-shifting album. I'm not sure if, if any of their previous material 
has ever quite been that, but I do believe the best of what they've been has at least been four or five. At least been four or five. They're they've always been on the fringe of something great, but all of that stuff that I mentioned, the 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 fandom getting in the way, that's kept this band back in almost every respect, and it still keeps them back a little bit here. But hell, they're climbing out of it. Not to be outdone by my co-host, four point two five as well, and here's why. We've said a lot at this point, but realistically, Steve makes some good points. Um, as someone who is much harsher on Weezer lately than John, I hated the last couple of albums. Absolutely hated them. Hurley isn't worth mentioning. It's awful. Um, um, Death to False Metal, I never. I listened to once and was horrified by. Now that said, I, like a lot of Weezer fans, we'll get into this more later, have very extreme opinions on them. There are other bands in this vein. Metallica is a big one. Where fans reject very harshly big differences. The, the thing here, though, about this new record and why I really, truly love it, and I'm not afraid to use the L word, I'm committed. <laughs> um, I don't know. I'm just being a dick at this point. Yeah. Um, the, 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 the reason I really love this record, I think, is because it's, it didn't give me what I wanted from Weezer. It give, gave me what I had no idea I wanted from Weezer. The last three tracks, huh. never saw them coming a mile away, and I was blown away by them. Absolutely incredible tracks, all three. Without a doubt, I say that wholeheartedly. This is an evolution of Weezer that I want. And there are moments of those songs strewn throughout this album. And I think that's why it gets a 425 for me, because they gave me what I didn't know I wanted yet. And that's a true evolution of a band when they can predict what you want before you want it. I may have not said it, but that's that's exactly what my my point two five is right there. A, a four, I think I think without that final trilogy, you would have a four. There's still enough catchy material in the rest of this album that this would still just be a solid four, but you know, that's a good album. There's nothing in, in four terror in just a solid four. That means it just barely made it above average this is pushing it that 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 extra step of the way they they threw in a trilogy here that they didn't have to include and i more power to respect okay it's this is hard random fanboy john yeah no 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 a few facts about this album one 200 songs were considered over over two dozen were actually recorded i heard that and a dozen of them is what made the cut so this song was recorded from January to October. It was, it was the, yes, it was started in January. They got it out by October. That shows so, how prolific Rivers Cuomo is. Yes. That's, that's a big thing. So they really did go through a lot of stuff. The only one I say maybe a bad choice would have been Go Away. It's lighthearted. It doesn't really add anything. It's just catchy. That's, it, it's, it's, that's my big dip. But this album gave me exactly what I wanted. It started by giving me old school Blue Weezer, showing that they have their roots still. It adapted itself at, by track five and going further into the next step and what Weezer has done and how they're changing things up, bringing new elements, adjusting their sound to things that they like, and giving me a lot of content on top of that. And then the final three tracks, gives me something I completely couldn't see coming. It blew me away. That first time I heard the trilogy. I mean, it's going to be the new trilogy for me to to talk about this year. So it's it's the old, the new, and the unforeseen. There's so much going on here. I love. It's the perfect, like, like 
Steve said, it's the perfect Weasel, Weezer album right now. It's a little bit higher than you guys, but I'm not going off rails here. It's a 4-5. It's a solid, stand-up, great album. Not perfect, not even close to perfection, but Weezer makes a habit of never trying to achieve perfection. They achieve their iconic idea. They are and always will be Weezer. They do what they want. They don't care in the long run. None of them truly care what the fans actually think of it because these four guys always make music that they enjoy. There's also two things here that, that we just forgot to mention. I just want to add them on here because I think they're important. But um, theme, again, we kind of neglected to mention that just here in our wrap-ups, but we mentioned it enough during, during our that review. That it's an overarching theme of it's, relationships. It's something that's really pushing it above that four. Again, mm -hmm. to the point where I feel like we can forget about the tracks that we perhaps consider throwaways. Um, and then the other thing is just the all-out rock factor, which is just, you know, again, sort of that guilty pleasure thing that you just have to enjoy for the sake of it. it it's, it's, it's that, it's, it's there. It's well, there. You gotta, you gotta just let loose smiles. sometimes. I get You smiles. gotta let loose. I just, I, I just have to harp on, I hate the phrasing guilty pleasures. And our good friend, Painless Parker said time and time again, if it's, if it's a pleasure, you shouldn't feel guilty about hey, it. Hey, I made that argument to you, I think in a very early, early podcast. Probably, but, but, but Painless Parker is way more influential than you are. In his eyes. I have that on record. I hate this. Anyway, <laughs> um, you can edit and I cut wasn't it. serious. I can't actually cut you. Anyway, you can cut me out there, um, But, you know, the other thing is not just being rock itself. But, you know, when you look at, like, the, when you break down that stuff, mm -hmm. it, when you break down the elements of the final trilogy, you know, those elements that I just discussed, it's not really... We're not talking about drastically complicated things. It's simple choices that they just went balls to the wall with, and that's what I respect them for. They weren't, they weren't afraid of anything, and they weren't just using things as throwaways. When they decided to utilize that relative motion, well, they went all out, and they turned it into the best possible epic that you can make out of a very simple, simple musical idea. That's, again, props. You've got to stay focused with your idea. That will push you above four, above from merely good to you know, broaching great if we see it in simpler terms, like four being good, four, five being great, and five being, well, what the hell. And making fun of you aside, I agree. Like, music that you consider guilty pleasure, the, this idea that something that you just have to hopelessly enjoy, I mean, I lump lots of things in that category, but you're absolutely right. This album from cover to cover is completely catchy and hard to not enjoy. And that's what my favorite album was. The Green Album was that. It was beyond anything else, fun and enjoyable. Um, now we can go into something that I touched on a bit. and There are some bands that really come to light when talking about this kind of a topic that have a vehement fan base. Vehement fan bases can be a blessing and a curse. Take it from Weezer, Metallica, Pearl Jam. Green Day. These, these are all bands, just to name a few, that the fans, when they release a new record, people either love it or hate it. It's a polarizing experience. There's no real middle ground. And the reason for that, I think, is identity. And what I mean by that is, there are a lot of bands that are very influential that that doesn't happen with. Like Queen, more or less, everybody loved everything they did, albeit they were taken early, blah, blah, blah. But there are a lot of bands that do very polarizing music that never really have that kind of an impact, or do samey music that nobody cares. I think the reason that it happens with bands like Metallica and Weezer 
and Green Day is these three bands have often sang about either very dark or very personal things and people get very attached to the band members as well as the band. And I think when they flip on it and they change their style completely, people will get offended like you're betraying our personal relationship. But that in itself some, is usually a fault on the listener themselves. I agree. Because it assumes, they assume, that they know the band. They yeah. assume that they know them intimately based on one album's work. A lot of times, most often bands just do not get their sound honed or they don't get their full idea out based on their de debut record. So to take the band at hand, for instance, Blue Album is a great representation, I think, of what they were already on the road for. But their debut album. As far as I know, they were early 20s in that for when they released that record, you know. They got out some things I think that were very personal to them, but as far as I know and as far as the record shows, Pinkerton got a lot more out. It got a lot more about who Rivers Cuomo is, all of his problems, or sort of as he's going through this road of being a musician, which is why you could consider it very, very self-referential. It certainly breaks the fourth walls, albums do. Um, and for that reason, you know, I would think, well, this is more of their identity. But that's the problem. Once the fans have made up their mind what they believe a band's identity is, then it doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things. And that's where I think I, this, this, but this topic is mostly about, about how fans can, can steer a band, make a band, or break a band. And that's, that's the, 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 hard the, to reconcile. The heart of this matter is the fickleness of fans. Yeah. Ultimately, fans are fickle. Have a conversation with our previous guest, Shade from the Dark Lord, about his fan base. He refers to, in his most recent record, how he views his fan base sometimes as an effing albatross. Because he, they are responsible for him having a career, but just the same, he's terrified of what they're going to say about his work. And it happens to any artist who puts their heart in their work. And I think it's a valid concern as an artist, because ultimately you want to do what completes you. But if your fans reject it, well then really who is the music for because even though you're writing it for yourself the idea is to get it out there to people uh green day went through this during the late 90s early 2000s when they released uh nimrod which is my favorite album by them mine too uh it was followed up by the lackluster warning and nobody really knew how to take warning there wasn't many hits from it Instead of actually producing another album after that, they, they ended up doing shenanigans, international super hits. They really didn't know what they were doing. They were scrambling for information because these were just compilation albums. They weren't doing anything big. They were trying to recapture Dookie by re-releasing Dookie yeah. or Kerplunk. I mean, there wasn't anything going on here. Took them a while. Took them four solid years of recording. And they did lose an album that was stolen from them during that time before they came out with American Idiot. Because from Nimrod onward, 1997 onward, uh, maybe 98, they were really in a decline. They were touring, but they weren't producing anything that was chart toppers anymore. Well, that also has to go with the changing of the times, and I think that's another thing. I mean, obviously, that's sort of intertwined with who your fan base is because, well, a lot of people are sheep, and they, and they just sort of flock with the next big thing. But then again, that contrasts with the other half of fandom, and that is people who are stuck in their times, and they don't want to be anything else but when they were nostalgic. And that's exactly the kind of thing that I think uh, that led to this, this dramatic shift that I, I always witnessed when it came to Weezer. People who just wanted old-fashioned Weezer, and then people who were like, well, yeah, it's, time has passed. The problem also here is that 
it's not really the fan that defines that because you can be a fickle fan about one thing and then completely open-minded about something else. It's the content too and how it impacts you personally. Yeah. Because, I mean, mentioning the word fandom, you can't help but talk about also nerdy fandoms like in TV and movies, Harry Potter, Doctor Who are big ones that old people always talk about. Comic books, like when they ruin Spider-Man a couple of times recently. The, po- <laughs> the point being though, like I'll take Doctor Who most recently. To me... I'm a fan of Doctor Who and its newest incarnation, starting with Christopher Eccleston, but I watch the older stuff too. There are a lot of people who grew up watching the older, older stuff who hate the newer incarnation. And sometimes it's just in the face of change. Sometimes it's other reasons. I mean, like bad writing, very boxing content, so on. And I feel like in music too, you get the same way. You expect a certain level of content and connection, and when it's taken from you, you take it as a personal affront. Now, is that fair to the band? Of course not. But... The problem is a lot of fans these days, and it's what drives me nuts about fandoms, is that they decide that what's being made is only made for them personally, not the industry as a whole or the band themselves. You know, I mean, 90% of entertainment is made to satisfy both the creator and the fans, not just one or the other. It's a give and take. And I think a lot of fans lose sight of that due to personal connection and commitment. It it incorporates a a whole plethora of fine lines that we've discussed in previous occasions, like, for instance, the question of of safety, you know, in music. Mm -hmm. Safety versus... versus being a little bit too outlandish. I think we discussed that particularly back in episode 52. And, I mean, go fast forward to the topic and you'll find that particular, uh, that particular discussion. And it's interesting because, you know, some people really, really just detest that a band would choose to change with the times and would be so, so wistful in that regard. Uh, but sometimes the times change for the better. Maybe not in every instance. I would probably argue not in the case of Ratitude um, or or Hurley. But sometimes it's for the better. So that frankly, you can't you can't blame them for experimenting. Yes, it could and, win. And I think this album is a perfect example of how it's done right when you know you need to grow and how to grow. And I think that's why I rated this so highly. Also, is because those last three tracks none of us saw coming. None of us. And we didn't know we wanted it. But after we've heard it now, I can't imagine a Weezer without it. Like, honestly, those three tracks live must be incredible if they play them. They were. So They were indeed. It was quite the bash. And so that's... that's He's rubbing it in. And, and I think that's my biggest point about... <laughs> Should have been there. <laughs> I think that's my biggest point about all of this and fandoms in general, is that it's a give and take, but you have to let art breathe. Art gets stale without it. You know... It's the running joke about Aerosmith. And you know what? I still love Aerosmith, but all of their albums sound the same. All of them. Since the 90s revitalization of Aerosmith, they have not done anything different. Steve's going to tour till he's dead, and then they'll prop him up and just move his arms and lips and things like that, and they'll still be touring. They don't want to change. They have no desire to change. Their fan base doesn't want them to change. change either. They found that niche. But at the same time, they're not drawing any new fans. They're not expanding their repertoire. That's the problem with when you give the fans exactly what you want. You're not going to necessarily get new people. You're going to have the same 5,000, then 4,900, then 4,800 million people loving you, and then 46, 42. It gets smaller because it's not sustainable if you keep catering to the people that liked you for one reason. True. 
There's an opposite end to that, though. Take the Gorillaz and Damon, who pretty much does whatever the hell he wants. He is upholden to nobody. He makes the albums he wants to make because he is a brilliant producer when it comes down to it. That said, Demon Days, the self-titled Demon Days and Plastic Beach are drastically different. I enjoy that they're drastically different, but John fell off with Plastic Beach, whereas me and Dave stay invested, and we liked it. And I think that's also can be a problem, is if you're only doing it for yourself and doing exactly what you want and you change every time, fans can't get comfortable either, and it makes it harder. But that's I'm, another fine line, though. It's yes, really tricky but, to explore. But, but I wouldn't be amiss to listening to a new Gorillaz album. Of course, That's yes. a big thing that I think a lot of fans don't approach. If your band is really screwing things up, in your opinion... That doesn't mean you should write them off forever. I agree. Well, I, would I... Still, I would still like to hear a new Killers album, even though I know that they've kind of gone from this really awesome thing into, like, uh, kind of samey, genericified love songs. Yeah, but that's what I kind of wanted to touch upon, too, is, you know, looking at bands, looking at looking at the fans in particular that are, that are making up these decisions and you go along, and we're mainly talking about them from the stand of flightiness, fickleness. That's true. It's all true. Sometimes I do want... Most of us should be should be self-aware enough to recognize this in ourselves. Sometimes the fan can be insightful. Sometimes yeah, the fan absolutely. can, and, and I, I'm not saying with this, with this with any offense to, to any band out there, but sometimes the fan can not necessarily know you better than you know yourself, but know your place in music's time and what you are doing in music's time because a lot of times artists can be self-involved in this regard well i'm just doing what i'm doing that doesn't always mean you're that just means you're exactly that you're doing what you're doing and that's it then you're not catering to anyone you're just catering to yourself and in a sense that can be a little that can be a little selfish for something that you know you're releasing to to a, a massive public especially if you expect it to just win big if you're doing this for yourself and you just release it and expect it to be big, then you really can't get mad at anybody. You can't. I mean, it was your work after all. So if someone has a, has a decent critique out there for, you know, why perhaps your album didn't make it so big, why it didn't reach the right fan bases, or why it's just not really fitting in this particular time, there can be some damn good reasons behind that. And many occasions, uh, artists have learned a lot from their fan base based on that. I think it ultimately boils down to this, as a lot of things do, balance. You really need yes. to have a give and take with your audience. You have to be interactive. One of my favorite nerdcore rappers who I've mentioned on the podcast a few times besides Schaefer is a guy named Adam Warrock. What I love about Adam is he releases free music all, all year long, but also produces records that he sells that he sells as a record and, and puts them out. The free tracks are to gauge, to keep his his skills sharp to prove that he can write music masterfully mm. and to give the fans something. Whether they love it or hate it, he's constantly giving them something to chew on until he puts out his record, his focused work. Yeah. Well, it's basically creating a testing group. Yeah. Because he sees his response and he knows they're released on what YouTube. sort of direction He gives the MP3s want. out for free because he some, often samples stuff that he can't sell because of other sampling issues. But, but it, it lets him test his target audience. He did something recently called the Rapathon, where for 24 hours he wrote as many songs as he could. He ended up writing 16 songs. I really only didn't like like two of them. He did it in 20, 20 hours. I think he did it for to raise money for Rain, which is a um, anti-violence, uh, anti-sexual assault campaign. And it was brilliant the way he did it. And he burned himself out doing it 
because he can. And it gave people pretty much a brand new album of just songs from that rapathon. You know, I think that's an example of the way to balance your fan base. Keep them wanting more, give them enough that they can chew on it, and then give them the big work that's more personal to you after that. There's something to admire about that, I think, of the testing group thing, because a lot of artists would probably reject that. It's just like, you know, I'm not trying to cater myself to anyone. But a smart artist would. A smart artist would say, well, I can write anything I want. So now, let's try to figure out how I'm going to do this masterfully and get as broad of an audience as possible. Because let's face it, it's not just art. It is a business, too. You're not really going to really make it in the big world if you're not also a bit of a marketer. Yeah. And so I think that, that he's a shining example of what, yeah. not necessarily what's right for everybody, but what's right for him to find that balance. And ultimately, it's finding that balance between your work and your fan base. To return this to our, our obvious case study here, you know, the example of Weezer, I said it before in this podcast, I'll say it again. Blue and Pinkerton simply could not be made ever again. The thing is, and I do still believe that something that made them a little bit magical in those two albums is the fact, and this is just my own personal opinion, as the fan who has his opinion, and especially as a newcomer too, I believe it has a lot to do with the mixing. I believe it had to do with the fact that Blue was so underproduced, it made it a little bit magical in that garage sense, kind of the same way we discussed um, in the case of episode 114's Daryl's Ohio, but not as gritty it was much warmer it was a warmer side of local of local color local flavor and that persisted with pinkerton although it added a little bit more grit still same concept from then on they haven't really had that level of underproduction so they explored various different avenues but in my opinion i do believe that is what made weezer the staple i think that would be my personal uh um, I guess my, my, my period at the end of that sentence. My, that, that's, the, that's their place in the world, I think. And today, I think he's still making great music. I think I would like to see an underproduced album. And as much <laughs> as I would just... I mean, again, an, an underproduced album for the modern times, who knows, it might fall flat, but I would credit them for trying to revisit an underproduced style in a 2010s world. Which is harder to do. Yeah. Um... Fall flat in your face, I won't blame you for it. There you go. Well, because they, they're the ones who fell. You can't blame someone for falling. That's unfair to the person who fell. What? Unless they're pushed. <laughs> then someone's going to I blame. think this is a fantastic point to go to our spam of the week. Because you sounded like spam? Because you lost the train of thought and your words just went... You mean like how you speak most of the time? Words are hard. Stop ripping on me. Spam. What's taking place? I'm new to this. I stumbled upon this. I found it absolutely useful, and it has helped me loads. There's a slight little extra space between me and, and loads. Who's that by? <laughs> so, uh, that is by Rosalie. So it's almost real. So close. Almost. So close. Almost. Maybe she's born with it. Maybe it's Maybelline. I was actually thinking the Eric Neff track, Rosalie. Rosalie. Yeah. Um, <laughs> he was the light to talk to. He'll be coming up on autographs in, in the soonish future. The immediate future on autographs, we're going to have... November, late November, perhaps. The, the Michael Kill, renowned nerdcore rapper and producer, um, who I've become great friends with over the internet. Um, we, and uh, we bond, we chat about nerdy things, we chat about his music. So that's coming up the Tuesday after this comes out. Um, Steve, you have an album to pick. Oh, do I? You do. 
before I wrap things up completely, why don't you give us your album for next week? All right, next week, I'm going to be doing a little interesting experiment. It's oh. another little case study of nostalgia, but they're returning. It's still a brand new album. We're not doing, we're, we're stepping away from, uh, from, retro. from retro albums, what we did this week. But even this album, uh, even this week's album is still kind of stepping into an existing band for a while. But this band that I'm about to mention only existed for one album, and it was a decade ago. And they broke up, and that was that. That band is Death From Above, 1979. And I absolutely loved their 2004 album, You're a Woman, I'm a Machine, because it consisted of a bassist and a drummer, and that's it. And it was awesome. And, what's and it was a very unique brand of rock, unlike anything I had ever heard as of 2004, because it had all of the, all of the grit that I did just mention several times now in, in uh, Daryl's Ohio, and then some. And at the same time, it wasn't whiny, it was more just powerful, it was brimming with testosterone. A decade later, well, testosterone levels go up and down, so I'm curious to see what their, what their uh, 2014 album is, as opposed to their Which 2004 album. That is called The Physical World. Sounds pretty testosterone-filled, doesn't it? Fascinating. Um, Indeed. I want, to, I want to take a moment to address a fan who submitted a fan request for an album um, after Jose. Uh, her name is Heather. She follows us on Twitter and tweets at us every so often. Heather, thank you for listening. Hailing from Chicago, I believe. Um, I don't remember the album off the top of my head, though. I do have it written down. We will get to your album sometime in November. We're not sure exactly when yet, but we're going to try and take care of it this month since December is a cluster F of amazing. So... Um, I just wanted to address that, that we do have the request. It is in the queue, and we will get to it this month. Um, I also want to say, of course, check us out on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr. Um, I personally am on Instagram at, at Matt Stormageddon, and I do post podcast-related stuff there. Um, email us, crash, uh, admin at CrashCourse.com, or any of our names at CrashCourse.com. I'm, I'm on Staten Island. I'm in the yellow pages. We, I live in Don't Brooklyn. find me in the yellow pages. <laughs> um, reach or the out, white or reach whatever. Out. Also, if you're listening and you represent a band, or you are a band, or you're an artist, please reach out. We have guests every month. I have another podcast I do where I just interview people. We'd love to have you on. Please reach out. Admin at CrashCords.com. I also have a new obsession now that I got Weezer out of the way. Uh-oh. It was recently announced that Steam Powered Giraffe has now done The Vice Quadrant. It is their new upcoming 2015, they promised, 2015 album. So, well, it's not going to be Weezer anymore. It's back to Steam Powered. They promised that it'll be 2015? It's in the numbers. What is it, the MTA? They have to... <laughs> right, because the MTA always delivers. <laughs> that's the thing, but they always make empty promises. They that's, better. That's, that's true. Well, Steam Powered Draft's pretty good about keeping promises, so we'll yes. see. Um, also, I want to announce the November guest is Circadian Clock. I'm not sure how many members of the band will be here. I know the lead singer, Mel. She will be here. Hopefully some other members as well so we can get some live music. Otherwise, we'll feature the recorded tracks. So we're excited to have them on. Um, I featured their single, Bright Side, on, um, on a song shot last month or two months ago. So go check that out. This is an awesome, awesome track. It's a really great song. Along with video. Um, so that's it. We're done here. Let's uh, all go to bed. Um, and on that note, Good night. as always, music, music is, is life and life is good. good.